after ages in which nature had maintained the barriers of time and distance between men and nations, radio eliminated them and enabled man to send a whisper around the earth. Sometimes a man goes back to his hometown, not for any particular reason, maybe just driving through, maybe just to look, maybe just to remember. There it is on the corner, the same old drugstore, the emporium of America, where the sharp, wonderful tang of a chocolate soda first nipped your tongue. It's all different and yet somehow the same. The worn wood of the counters, the stained marble top of the fountain, an old dock, off in the back, shirt sleeves, cuffs rolled up, wireframe glasses, thinning white hair. <sighs> there are memories here, memories of your first date at the same fountain, the whole Saturday night of it because you didn't know where else to go and of the night after graduation when all the folks and kids went to the movies, but all of you somehow met here later in your blue suits because it was the last time. But that was a long time ago. There's Doc, he's coming over. His face is quiet, and yet there's something in the eyes that twinkles and understands. Guess you're not the first to come back. Hi, Doc. He's looking, looking hard behind those wire glasses. And then he speaks. I know what you want. Black and white with two scoops. <laughs> Doc, you forgot the straw again. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 94. My name is James Scully. Today on Breaking Walls, we visit the malt shops, drugstores, and soda counters of America's heartland and spend time with radio's best dramatic actors and actresses. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song is Santo and Johnny Freena's 1959 Sleepwalk, a perfect tune for those dog days of summer. If you're on Facebook, join our Wallbreakers Facebook group to keep in touch with news like Burning Gotham, 
are a completely original audio drama series. It will be set in 1830s New York City and is in development. Listen to the teaser at thewallbreakers.com. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. In the summer of 1940, it was August 19th, 1940, I was staying with my mother and my aunt in Hollywood, near Central Avenue. My mother went to visit somebody at the beach, and I decided to go to the opening of a market on Gordon Street. And in those days, when a market opened, there were Klieg lights and movie stars and big shows, and I went to see the fun. I wanted to see the celebrities. So I went up there. And nothing much was happening. There weren't many celebrities. And I got a little bored, and I walked down Sunset Boulevard toward Columbia Square. That's at Gower and Sunset. And as I was walking down the street, I see this little elderly lady, a character actress named Jane Morgan, wonderful actress. And I saw her coming down the street, and I realized that at 10 o'clock, this is very strange for any actor or actress to be coming into a radio studio. It isn't strange at 8 o'clock or 7 o'clock when you start your rehearsals. But 10 o'clock was rather different, so I was curious. She went in, I followed her into the inner lobby, uh, which there is no longer at Columbia Square, it's all cemented in, it's different. And she went into the left, into the inner lobby, and sat down, and where I saw people, I knew who they were, they didn't know me, but I knew that was Bob Burleson, and that was Jerry Hausner, and that was a sitting there with scripts in their hands, and I knew immediately what that was. They were sitting with scripts in their laps, in the lobby. It was an audition. So I went in and sat down. A few minutes later, a man comes out who is an assistant radio director named Sterling Tracy. He had known my face from hanging around CBS all the time, from becoming sort of an accoutrement there. He would hand me tickets like in the Men in the Street shows. Here, you had tickets and you hand them to the people who said, yes, my name is John Smith and I like so-and-so. And there I was, I was a part of radio even in those days, just a kid. So he knew the face, he didn't even remember my name. But I had put my, name in a radio directory that uh, was, uh, I think, Lou Loria in those days put out a radio directory. I put my face and my picture and all the credits I had done in New York, you know. <laughs> all these. So Tracy comes out of the inner lobby and he walks up and he looks at me and I look at him and I says, you know, Trace, uh, I says, I wasn't called for this part. He says, yeah, I know. He says, I didn't know you were an actor. But he says, I, I, yeah, I do remember I saw your picture in that book, but I, I didn't uh, register. He says, uh, you want to take a crack at this Charlie part? I says, yeah. She says, okay, I'll go back and I'll get this script. Now he brings back the script and I see the script. I think I registered this thing. It was a show called Forecast. The story was a Bethel Meriday. The part was Charlie Hatch, which he told me Charlie Hatch. It's page 18. I read it over. And it's Charlie and the girlfriend Bethel. Columbia Broadcasting System presents the 12th and 13th in a series of 14 proposed new programs entitled Forecast. As most of you know by now, Columbia's forecast programs are sample programs. 
Each of these 14 broadcasts is a radio first night, a trial performance intended to display for your approval or your criticism a new radio idea. If you like either or both of the two shows broadcast tonight, for example, it is possible that either or both of them may at some future time be heard regularly on the air. We ask your critical attention then for two new radio first night performances. Forecast number 12 from New York, Paul Robeson in All God's Children with Eddie Green, Amanda Randolph, the Eva Jesse Choir, and Mark Warno's Orchestra. Forecast number 13 from Hollywood, Margaret Sullivan and Bethel Meriday, based on the novel by Sinclair Lewis. In the summer of 1940, when CBS's Lux Radio Theater departed from the airwaves for its annual summer vacation, head of CBS William Paley decided to fill Lux's time slot with a new series called Forecast. It ushered in an era of pilots for public consumption. The Lux Radio Theater was an hour-long production which aired on Monday evenings from 9 to 10 p.m. When Forecast premiered on July 15th, it did so with two half-hour productions, the first from New York and the second from Hollywood. This became standard as summer progressed. The idea was simple. 14 pilots over the course of eight weeks. Each coast would produce one hour-long show as well. Network announcers invited listeners to write to CBS with feedback. The most popular shows were earmarked. Forecast gave rise to Suspense, Duffy's Tavern, and eventually Hopalong Cassidy. It featured stars like Marlene Dietrich, Burgess Meredith, Kay Thompson, and Margaret Sullivan. It presented huge opportunities for Norman Corwin, Helen Deutsch, and Bill Spear. And it employed actors like Gerald Moore, Elliot Lewis, Lorene Tuttle, Paula Winslow, Joseph Kearns, and Byron Kane. And I walk in and I see this lady standing opposite the microphone. It was a, uh, a lady named Lucille Meredith. I knew immediately who she was. She was a very active radio actress from New York, and she's been out here. I knew all of it. She had a very throaty voice, deeper than Lauren Bacall's. She was there standing opposite the microphone, and I walked up, and then I nodded. And I could think Tracy said, this is Byron Kane. And then he went into this control booth where there were about five or six people. And I said, okay, Trace, where do I start? It was a microphone just like this. And he said, well, I'm not conducting the audition. He says, Mr. Corwin is. It sort of rang a bell. I knew Corwin was a, yes, it was a director, radio director, big radio and I said, how are you doing? He said, okay. He says, all right. He says, go ahead, Kane. And we start. Bethel and I, and Bethel wants to be an actress. She's in a small town. And I, her, her boyfriend, Charlie Hatch, 17 years old, says, don't do it. Don't be an actress. It's full of pitfalls. You go to New York, it'll be terrible. And that was the scene. It ran about a page. Corwin pushes the talk back and says, that's it, Kane. He says, read page 22. So I went to 22. And away I went. I read, she read, I read. He pushes the talk back again and said, Kane, he said, that's very good. He says, tell me, what is your schedule the next three days? <laughs> My schedule. I'm in a summer vacation, high school, nothing. I said, uh, I'm clear. So he writes down these times. He says, all right, I'm going to give you these times. He says, but this is not a call. In those days, the phrase, a call, I have a call for a show. You've got a call. I got a call. That meant you're hired. He says, this is not a call, but how far away do you live from here? I says, just, just about three blocks. He says, okay, you take the script and you go home and you wait. 
we'll get in touch with you, but he says, not call. I says, thank you, and I take the script, and I just float home, because I've got a real script, and a real show is going to go coast to coast, and I wait, and it's about 11.15 by that time, 11.30 comes by, and a quarter to 12, and the proverbial 12 o'clock comes, and I can't wait any longer, I just, I was so, I called in to the studio, and Tracy got on the phone, he was on the phone, I said, Trace, I said, Byron Kane, I says, did, did I get the part? And he says, wait a minute. And now I hear this soft telephone thing. <laughs> Just like I'm telling it to you, as fast as I can remember those many years back. And he comes back and says, yeah, yeah, you got it. Uh, come to, to rehearsal tomorrow, the times we told you. And I said, thank you. And, and, and of course, I put the script under my pillow and I couldn't sleep the rest of the night. <laughs> On August 26th, Norman Corwin directed Helen Deutsch's adaptation of Bethel Meriday, based on the novel written by Sinclair Lewis. Co-starring Howard De Silva as Mr. Keezer. It opens with Margaret Sullivan, Lorene Tuttle, and a debuting 17-year-old Byron Kane at a local malt shop where Bethel makes an important discovery for her life. My name is Keezer. Doc Keezer, they call me, though I'm no doctor. These radio people here have asked me to tell you the story of Bethel Meredy, but I, I don't rightly know where to begin. Bethel's a star now, and let me add, a fine actress, which isn't always the same thing. Ask anybody today who the leading young stage actresses are. The answer is Helen Hayes, Catherine Cornell, and Bethel Meredy. Exactly where the whole thing started is hard to say. Maybe long before Bethel was born in the blood of some Meriday ancestor. Maybe it began in Mr. Fossfinder's drugstore back in 1931, when Bethel was still in high school. What'll it be, girls? Jumbo moss milk. Uh, what's yours, Princess? Hey, what are you having, beautiful? Bethel, wake up! What are you going to have? What? Oh, uh, I don't care anything. When she's in this mood, you can give her a kerosene Ipecac Sunday, and she won't know the difference. Oh, I'll, uh, have a, a maple nut sundae. Okay. Hello, Charlie. Hello, Bethel. Hello, Alva. Move over, Bethel. Sit down here, Charlie. We just saw the most wonderful movie. It was called The Heart of an Understudy. The understudy didn't have a friend in the world. She was an orphan, and Frank shot tone. He kept carrying her suitcase. And then one night, the star of the play lay dying. And the understudy played the star's part. And then she married a banker's son. He was filthy with money. She just moved right up to Long Island. Well, she had to win over his mother first. Oh, the mother was awful. She was so refined. That dress she had on when she played the leading part must cost a thousand dollars. I didn't like it, though. Did you, Bethel? Did you, huh? Did you like that rhinestone dress? Bethel, I'm talking to you. Ah, oh, she's in one of a million mile away moods. You want to know something? What? I'm going to be a stage actress. Like that understudy in the picture. Look who's talking. You serious? I certainly am. Bethel, there aren't any stage actresses anymore. All that old-fashioned junk. Please. Uh, here's my 15 cent. I don't think I want any more of my ice cream. I'm going home, I think. So long. Did you ever? Now she's sore. No. No, she's not. Beth's never sore. She's just... Uh... Excuse me, Alva. Guess I'll run along. Bye. Goodbye. I've got to get along. It was all on-the-job training. 
it started in that backyard of Richard Pettuccini when I said to my other friend, oh yes, I will go over. I walked over to KMPC against the wall with high Aberback, and away I went. That was the, really the first thing. Why I was able to do it, I can only say Mother Nature gave me that gift. I was. I have theories, of course, about acting, and as, as many years have passed, I've talked to younger actors and who told me about their desires and their systems and the methods and the things, and I could go on for hours about that. I think a fine actor or actress, I believe, I know, a fine actor or actress is born. You don't learn to be a fine actress. You can, you can learn on the job and learn tricks. Oh my God, the mistakes I've made, of course. Of course, but the Lorene Tuttles, whoever, however she started, no one has to tell me. She was born, and I could go to the list of the people that you could remind me of that I've forgotten. You were really all over radio. Oh, weren't I should you? say I was. I used to do all kinds of voices mm. too. I still can. I can go down to McGregor and sometimes do a little, little tiny girl. The moon shines bright in such a night as this. When the sweet wind gently kissed the trees. On such a night did young Lorenzo swear he loved her well, stealing her soul with many vows of faith, and never a true one. Hello, Bethel. Oh. Where are you going? Uh, just walking, Charlie. I saw you go by our house. Thought maybe you were going someplace. No, no. Just walking. You were talking to yourself. I wish you'd stop spying on me, Charlie. I wasn't spying. Say, Beth, I'm going down to the Rex Pharmacy to bring back five chocolate sodas and one vanilla. You want to come along? Uh-uh, not just now, Charlie. The gang's in Alva Pringle's porch and Frank's got his ukulele. Some other time, Charlie. What's the matter, Beth? What are you thinking about? Are you thinking about something, Bethel? I'm thinking that I'd like to be alone. Oh, gosh, Beth, being with me is the same as being alone. Yeah, you're right about that, Charlie. Huh? Look, Charlie, I want to think about something. I, I don't want to talk. All right, we won't talk. You know, Bethel, they say that when a girl gets married and has a couple of children, she isn't moody anymore. That's what my father says. I don't know why you have to discuss me with your father. We weren't discussing you. We were just sort of, you know, talking. My dad says it doesn't hurt for a man to marry young. He says it gives him something to work for. You see, I got a job waiting for me when I get out of school, and inside of two years, I can be earning 35 a week. I don't want to get married now. We could get a little flat, and maybe in a couple of years, a convertible coupe. Told you, I don't want to get married. We could have a swell time driving up to Waterbury or Hartford on Sundays and take a picnic lunch along. I'd get a thermos jug. A what? A thermos jug. That's the kind of life you should have. It's time you gave up this business about the stage. Oh, Charlie, you're right, you know. You really are right. The theater is an awful place. There are thousands of girls making the rounds of the theatrical producer's offices right now. They're waiting on tables and running elevators, and not one of them lives a family life. And then you get a job, and you rehearse four weeks, and the play runs three days. And the dress rehearsals last all night. The people walk out during a performance, and oh, there's not really any glamour. It's just hard work. And after a while, you take to drinking whiskey. No, I tell you, a job in a grocery store is better. That's right. That's the way it is. How do you know? Why, why, that's the way it just is. Do you know that the actor's shoes have holes in them? And the star gets her feet wet in the dressing room? You don't say. It's not an easy life, and anybody who wants to be an actress is just crazy. Ah, oh, gee, Beth, I'm glad you've given up that crazy notion. Charlie, take you. You're happy here in this small town. You There's... bet. And I'm sure to get a job with the Flamolio Sales Corporation. I'm going to sell coffee percolators. That's a good thing to sell, you know. Everybody needs a coffee percolator. Oh, please, Charlie. I don't want to talk about it now. Well, 
When do you want to talk about it? Please be an angel and leave me alone. I have something to think about. All right. There. You see the way I give in to you? I'll leave you alone. I'll run down to the wrecks and get the sodas. You doing anything later? Morris Bass is going to bring his banjo to Albert Pringle's porch, and we're going to harmonize it. You coming over? I, I don't know. Uh, goodbye, Charlie. All right, all right. I'm going. Don't rush me. Now, this show replaced the Lux Radio Theater for the summer. Coast to coast. It aired Pacific Coast, 7 o'clock. Bethel Maraday was the show. It was, forecast was a, what we now know as pilot. <clears throat> as somebody, if a prospective sponsor liked that show, they'd buy it for the next week. Walked into the studio, and now I'm aware of all of these radio actors whom I was in such awe of, and I realized from reading the script that I had the second biggest part. It was Bethel, and it was Charlie Hatch, and Mr. Keezer was the third largest part. The rest of the supporting cast, and I look, and here is Lorene Tuttle, and Paula Winslow, and Norman Field, and I realized back, they're supporting me. I have much bigger parts <laughs> than they do. Walked in, and Tracy or Corwin introduced me to all these people that I was so happy to meet, and... Uh, then Mr. Keezer, Howard De Silva. And then they introduced me to the lady who was going to play Bethel, the star of the show, the lead. And this lady's name was Margaret Sullivan, the supreme actress of the Broadway stage and a few pictures. Very, very big. And I am doing the lead opposite Margaret Sullivan, coast to coast. It went on the air. Everybody heard it. And overnight, my name was known in radio. Overnight. There must be something that gets you when you see it all coming together for the first time. Taking form like something hidden in a fog and then the mist clears and there it is. Now, how could you know that? Well, I must say... Oh, Joy, you startled me. Well, I must say I'm pretty startled myself. I thought you wanted to be alone. Uh, Mr. Keezer, may I... Present Charlie Hatch. He lives next door. Pleased to meet you. Here I am down at the Rex by myself because I'm good-natured and you said you wanted to be alone. And Charlie. You better learn now. If there's one thing a man cannot take, it's him being nice enough to leave a girl alone when she wants to be alone and then he finds her with another man. Please excuse me, Mr. Keezer. He's just the boy next door. She thinks she's Marlene Dietrich, but she's just the girl next door. Oh, it's getting late. I think I'd better be on my way. Uh, no, please don't go, Mr. Keezer. Charlie, I do not consider your behavior very attractive. Well, how do you think I feel about yours? This kind of goings-on may be all right for an actress and that kind of people, but it's not all right for you. Oh, it's better than getting late. I think I'd better be on my way. And it's for you, whoever you are. I suppose she's been telling you she's going to be an actress. Yes, and I am, too. A thermos jug and a little flat and a husband who talks about coffee percolators. That's not what I want. It's just not good enough. I go on day after day in this little town with every day, just like the day before. Lamb chops tonight, the rib roast tomorrow night. And the laundry is ruining the sheets. Do I want to play bridge on Wednesday? Mary has a new recipe. The in-laws are coming to dinner, and tomorrow's another day and another day and another day. No! No, it's not for me. Oh, heck, Beth. I know it all by heart, and it's not for me. So goodbye, Charlie Hatch. And anyway, those ice cream sodas are leaking all over your pants. Oh, who cares? Who cares? Goodbye anyway. Goodbye. But let me tell you this. You'll never find folks you can depend on like you can on your home folks. These Don Juans from New York, they'll use you and then throw you away like a worn-out glove. Like a wilted flower. Goodbye. You know, there's something in what he says. There's something about settling down in a nice little home. No, that... that's not for me. Well, I guess you know what you want. But remember... There may be no money and no fame. Mr. Keezer, I don't want diamonds or my face on billboards or flattery or adventure, anything, but just a chance to act. I want to be an actress. I think you will be, Bethel Meredith.
And that's how I first met Bethel Meriday. I was her first fan, I think, and I'm still a Meriday man. And I was there the night she went on a scared understudy to play Juliet, her first major role, on five hours' notice. I stood in the wings that night and prayed. But that was all a lot later. Plenty happened before that. I'll be telling you about it. You have been listening to Margaret Sullivan in Helen Deutsch's adaptation of Sinclair Lewis' best-selling novel, Bethel Meriday. The role of Doc Keezer was played by Howard DeSilva and that of Charlie by Byron Kane. The original musical score was composed and conducted by Wilbur Hatch, and the entire production was under the direction of Norman Corwin. The program you have just heard was intended as a sample, the opening episode in a series of half-hour dramas, each complete in itself, telling the life story of Bethel Meriday. Succeeding episodes would follow the absorbing story, using the Sinclair Lewis novel as the basis for early radio chapters. After covering completely the original novel, the radio serial would continue the story of Bethel Meriday beyond the conclusion of the book. interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu.
Cavalcade of America, sponsored by DuPont, maker of better things for better living. Through chemistry, presents Michael O'Shea and Alfred Drake in Pharmacist Make First Class. When Japan attacked Pearl Harbor in Manila on December 7, 1941, the Cavalcade of America had been on the air for six years. Its sponsor, the DuPont Company, had profited from gunpowder during the First World War. Years of bad press led them to the ad agency, Batten Barton, Durston and Osborne, for a brand perception change. The Cavalcade of America was the answer. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Cavalcade of America. Tonight you will hear Michael O'Shea, popular young film star, as Eddie Cochran, pharmacist's mate first class. Co-starred with him will be Alfred Drake, Broadway musical comedy star as Brick Maney, Torpedo Man. Our original play by Stuart Hawkins is based on a true heroic incident and is titled Pharmacist's Mate, First Class. Before our play begins, here is a recently released news item in the field of chemistry. Originally heard on CBS, the show featured some of New York's best acting talent. As World War II began, Cavalcade dramatized tales from the past, as well as stories of American ingenuity and courage, like this episode, The Pharmacist's Mate, First Class, which originally aired on May 24, 1943. And now DuPont presents Michael O'Shea and Alfred Drake in Pharmacist's Mate, First Class, on the Cavalcade of America. The major incident in tonight's play is based on fact. But in accordance with naval regulations, all names of persons and naval vessels mentioned are fictitious. However, we are honored to be able to introduce to you in person at the end of the broadcast the real hero of this true story of naval heroism and courage. It is 1938. On the sidewalk outside the Navy recruiting office, one of the two posters says, The Navy, your opportunity to learn a trade. And the other, in brighter colors, Join the Navy, see the world. The peacetime recruiting slogans of a peaceful America. For this is 1938. Your name? Uh, Cochran, Edward Cochran. Age? Uh, 21. You married? Oh, gosh, no, do I look it? I was just asking. What schools you attended? Uh, I graduated from Tapley High School two years ago last June, and then I had two-thirds of a year at college, if that counts for anything. Two-thirds of a year? What happened to the rest of it? Well, I was working my way through, you see, and my father got sick, and I had to come home and find a job to take care of him. How does he feel about you joining the Navy? He died six weeks ago. Oh. Oh, oh. all right, Cochran. Fill out this form, take it into the doctor's office, that, that door there. You pass your physical, you'll be on your way to the Newport training station early next week. Hey, Manny, I'll, I'll swap you a cigarette for a match. Sure thing. Why be formal? The name's Bud. Oh, thanks. Mine's Eddie. Eddie Cochran from Buffalo. 
Say, what did the lieutenant call you over about when he was checking our names? Oh, he was just asking me if I was any kin to Brick Manny. He was a boot here a couple of years ago. Oh, well, are you? Sure, he's my brother. He's up at Portsmouth on a submarine now. On a sub, huh? How does he like it? Swell. If I can't make the grade for the hospital corps, I might try for the sub-service myself. The hospital corps? Is that what you want to get into? Sure is. Uh, but, but why that? Well, it's the nearest I'll ever get to being a doctor, I guess. I can't afford college and medical school, but the hospital corps will give me a chance to be an x-ray technician or something like that. That sounds dull to me, bud. Me? I'm going in for something exciting like aviation or, or maybe submarines like your brother. You know, something with a kick in it. I wish I knew if they're going to approve my application for the hospital corps. Ah, you'll make it all right, but you haven't... Say. What's the matter? Baby, has that gob got a good-looking dame with him? Huh? What? Well, it looks like... It is. It's what? my brother. Hey, Brick. Hi there, bud. Come here. Come on, Eddie. Boy, I'm right with you. Brick, you old so-and-so. Where'd you come from? Hi, a kid. We've been looking all over for you, boy. Polly, meet the kid brother. This is Polly Shewitt, bud. Brick's told me an awful lot about you, bud. I'm mighty glad to meet you, miss. Uh, this is my friend, Eddie Cochran. How do you do, Mr. Hi, Cochran? Eddie. Brick, do what do? are you doing here? Why aren't you up in Portsmouth? Well, I got five days leave, so I'm taking Polly down home to meet the folks. We're engaged, bud. Oh, gee, congratulations. That's swell, Brick. I, I think you're both lucky people. Uh, when are you going to get married? Oh, not for a long time yet. The family says I've got to wait at least a year. But I'm being transferred to the Brooklyn Navy Yard next week, and Polly lives in New York, so maybe we can talk them out of it. <laughs> Say, Brick, tell me, uh, how do you like submarines, anyhow? Listen, Eddie, I wouldn't be on anything else for a million bucks. Good, huh? Mm. I mean, uh, better than destroyers or, or battle wagons? Oh, there's no comparison. Hey, you look like you'd do okay as a torpedo man, Eddie. You ought to look into it. Huh. I'll sure think about it, Brick. Uh, that submarine insignia sure dresses up that sleeve of yours, all right. Cochran, apprentice, seaman, report the executive officer. That's you, Eddie. Cochran, apprentice, seaman, report Okay, sailor, I'm on my way. Well, I'll see you folks later, maybe. Cochran, according to your record, your previous education, your aptitude tests, you're the kind we need in the hospital corps. The, the hospital corps, sir? Me? Yes. Means hard study, but you've got the intelligence for it. And I'm sure you'd find it interesting and satisfying work. Well, I, I never thought about it, sir. I've, I've always thought of something more exciting. Well, there's plenty of excitement in it. And unless you've some valid objections, we'll order you transfer to the Brooklyn Naval Hospital for training. Well, okay, then. I, I mean, yes, sir. I'm willing to go if that's where you think I belong. The scapula, clavicle, humerus, ulna. What's the other one, Eddie? The radius, you dope. Oh, sure, the radius. Gosh, I wish I was savvy like you. Men... The responsibility for proper hygiene and sanitation will rest entirely upon you. As pharmacist mates, you may find yourself responsible for the health of landing parties in tropical islands. The malaria, affected water supply, and other medical factors may prove more deadly than enemy bullets. Unless you know what to do, and do it. Eddie proves himself to be a tremendous study, but desperately wants to take part in the war. Those closest to him, like Bud and Brick, think he's a coward. Eventually, 
Eddie gets deployed as a pharmacist on the sub where Brick is stationed. Brick proves his worth. Listen to me, Brick. It's Eddie. Huh? Oh. Hello, pill roller. You still hanging around? Listen, Brick, you've got acute appendicitis. Your temperature's 104. Is that bad? It ain't good, Brick. If we don't do something before your appendix ruptures, it'll be curtains for you. Now, I'm giving it to you straight, Brick, because there's only one thing that'll save you. What's that? An operation. Operation? Don't make me laugh. We're three weeks from a hospital. That's right, and I've never done one, and I'm not supposed to do one, but... Well, if you're willing to take a chance and the skipper orders me to, I'll do the best I can for you. You? I think I can do it, Brick. I've assisted at a hundred or more, and I've watched thousands of them while I was at the hospital. I'm glad you was doing something besides seeing Polly all those months. I... Ooh! Boy! Was it Twister? You want me to try it, Brick? It's your only chance. Go ahead. What can I lose? I'll use the wardroom table, sir. I've got things pretty well set up in there already. Is there enough room there? Yes, sir. But we can't stay on the surface if she rolls too much in this ground swell. All right. Take her down below 100. We'll be steady as a rocket that day. Stand by to dive. Pressure in the boat. Diving station. Both engines stop. Half dive on the bow planes. Half dive on the bow planes. Main induction check, sir. All motors ahead, 2,000 aside. Leveled off at uh, 120 feet, Captain. Good. I'm already, sir, as soon as I get this last spoon bent. Yeah, that'll do it. What are those spoons for? Oh, they're retractors, sir. They're holding the incision open. Uh-huh. Now, will you hand me that tea strainer, Skipper? Yeah, sure. Don't bother making tea, Eddie. I don't like it. <laughs> this is our ether cone brick. Lieutenant Dashiell will administer the ether. We'll put this over your face and fold this cloth over it. All right, sir, will you start dropping the ether now? Now, breathe deep, brick. And count out loud from one to ten. One. Two. Three. Four. Five. Six. All right, sir. I'm I'm ready to begin. Another retractor, please. Here you are. Can't you work faster? I've got to find the appendix before I can take it out, sir. More ether, Lieutenant. And hold that flashlight a little closer, Pete. That's better. How about it, Cochran? How much longer? I'm doing the best I can, sir. Ah, there it is. Quick, now hand me another clip. Right. And a suture. I've got it now, sir. I've got it.
running out of ether. No more in the can. That's all right now, sir. Two more stitches and I'm done. Two hours. Seems like it's been all night. Oh. There. Okay, Pete. You can take those flashlights away now. Cochran, you better get some sleep. Oh, I'm okay, sir. I, I want to be here when he comes oh, out of it. Where are we get going, Polly? Oh, he's coming out of it now. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's the same. I don't know. Manny. Hello. Hello, Manny. Huh? Oh. Hiya, Skipper. <laughs> the question is, how are you? Me? I'm okay, I guess. Say, is it all over? Uh-huh. It's all over. Now, you've got to get well fast enough to help us knock off some Jap ships before we head for home, ain't it? Yeah, sure, Skipper. How about it, Eddie? Everything go all right? Yeah, Brick. Yeah, you're going to be okay. You'll be standing watching another two weeks. You... you sort of did a job, didn't you, Eddie? <laughs> Don't try to talk, Brick. Eddie. Eddie, I, I take it all back. Nah, just get some sleep, Brick. That, that's all you need for a while. I, I just want to say... Now I know why they kept you ashore so long. They knew what they were doing when they made you a... a pharmacist mate first class. And I mean first class. Didn't you hear me say no talking, Brick? Ah. I'll see you when I wake up. Huh, kid? Thank you, Michael O'Shea and Alfred Drake. And now, here is Michael O'Shea, co-star of this evening's performance. After the story ended, Cavalcade had the real officer who performed the surgery speak to the listening audience, providing words of encouragement and positive morale. Ladies and gentlemen, Alfred Drake and I have felt honored tonight in being privileged to, to suggest in some small degree the fortitude and the devotion to duty of that fine body of men who make up a little known but very necessary part of the Navy. I feel especially honored in presenting to you the man, man tonight's story was really about. The sailor who had the courage and intelligence and skill to save a shipmate's life under such unusual circumstances. Wheeler Lipes of the United States Navy. Thank you. Mr. Lipes, you won't mind, I hope, if I tell our radio audience that you were promoted to the warrant officer grade of pharmacist as a result of the excellent job you did under the orders in removing the appendix of one of your submarine shipmates. Well, the more important thing to get across to our listeners is an idea of the improvements and advances which have been adopted to protect the health of the submarine crews. Pharmacist mates serving aboard underseas craft are receiving special instruction in when and how to administer blood plasma. They receive intensive training, not only in first aid, submarine hygiene, and other health and life-saving measures, but also in the things that every submarine man must know. The medical supplies and equipment that are placed at the disposal of U.S. Hospital Corpsmen today are the envy of the men who were assigned to the same duty in World War I. With all that, however, an appendix operation is still a surgeon's job. I operated only because, in my judgment, it was a matter of life and death. My commanding officer agreed, 
and ordered me to proceed, and Providence was on our side. Thank you, Pharmacist Lipes. The orchestra and musical score tonight were under the direction of Don Voorhees. Cavalcade is pleased to inform its listeners that Michael O'Shea, co-star of tonight's program, is now appearing opposite Barbara Stanwyck in the Hunt Stromberg production, Lady of Burlesque. Alfred Drake is now appearing in the New York stage success, Oklahoma. This is Clayton Collier sending best wishes from Cavalcade sponsor, the DuPont Company of Wilmington, Delaware. This program came to you from New York. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Everything was gone over the airwaves, you know, it was sound, and everyone could imagine what a person looked like, Mm -hmm. what a situation looked like, in their own minds, by sound effects and by the person's voice. Gentlemen, Colgate Dental Cream presents the Dennis Day Show, written by Frank Galen, with Paula Winslow, Dink Trout, John Brown, Charles Dant in the orchestra, yours truly, Vern Smith, and starring our popular young singer in A Day in the Life of Dennis Day. Twice a day and before every date, use Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth. Here's Dennis to sing one of Harry Lauder's famous songs, The Wig Wag Wiggle of the Kilt. I'll never forget the day I went to Jack Benny's most famous Irish tenor, Dennis Day, was born on May 21st, 1916 in New York City to Irish immigrants, Patrick and Mary McNulty. Day graduated from Cathedral Prep in New York City and attended Manhattan College in the Bronx, where he sang in the Glee Club. Eventually, he made his way to radio, making his debut on the Jack Benny program on October 8th, 1939. When you went into that audition, how many other singers were there? How tough an audition was it? Well, there were probably over 500 singers that they were auditioning or listening to recordings of their voice. That's what Jack and Mary and the agents told me later. They had auditioned over 500 singers. There were lots of other singers that were in contention with me, several from Canada, quite a number from our own country, you know, who were in contention for the job because it was a very important job. He had Kenny Baker, who was a very big star at that time. 
and he had been made so by the Jack Benny program. Do you know why he left? He was the one who left. And everybody said, now, all the critics and everything said, who can follow Kenny Baker? Because he was a tremendous star at that time. Jack's first singer, at least before Kenny Baker, would be Frank Parker. Mm -hmm. And he had quite a number of other singers besides that. He had James Melton in the beginning. He had somebody else. He had a number of singers. Even after Kenny Baker left, he had auditioned quite a number of singers and tried somebody on the program. They didn't work out. And then I got the opportunity. And thank God, it worked. the Colgate Dental Cream cleans your breath while it cleans your teeth. No other toothpaste does a better job of cleaning your teeth than Colgate Dental Cream. For Colgate Dental Cream has a safe policy... Phil Harris, then Benny's band leader, remembered how Day got the job. You had to have something that he could magnify. In other words, when after Kenny Baker left, we couldn't find a singer. Benny, he always wanted a tenor. That's what Benny wanted to fit in there. So we finally saw this picture. We went into the Bronx, and McNulty is his real name. And I went over, and we had I had dinner over at his house. And his old man, we call him Tiptoes McNulty. He was rushing the can, you know, Schaefer's beer. And at the first rehearsal, Jack looked over and he said, Dennis, and Dennis said, yes, please. Well, that was it. That was, he, see, he had to find something that he could magnify. Day was a man of many talents, with both a supreme singing voice and impeccable comedic timing. During World War II, he enlisted in the Navy. By the time he was back on the air in March of 1946, NBC was ready to give him a chance at carrying his own show. A Day in the Life of Dennis Day premiered on Thursday, October 3rd, 1946, at 7.30 p.m. You know something, Dennis? I've been thinking. I know, Mildred. I've been watching you and admiring. <laughs> well, it's that picture we just saw, The Best Years of Our Lives. Why, that could be the story of us, Dennis. Of your life and mine. It could. Who oh, isn't the problem Dana Andrews had the same as yours? Didn't he come home from the war and have to take a job as a soda jerk just like you? Yeah, but he can always earn $3,000 a week on the side as an actor. <laughs> <laughs> that isn't what I mean, Dennis. Look at his marriage. His marriage? During the war, he got married in haste to a beautiful blonde with a gorgeous figure. When he came back and found out she wasn't his type mentally, he walked out on her. I know. Lots of things happen in the movies that don't happen in real life. <laughs> but that's just it, Dennis. Unhappy marriages happen every day in real life. One of us could turn out to be exactly like that beautiful blonde in the picture. Oh, I could never make it. <laughs> Dennis. Even though I was born and raised in New York City, I think the... Uh, I'd never been west of the Hudson. Been to Ireland with my aunt. Took me over when I got out of high school. But I'd never been out west, so I was pretty green. And, uh, you know, behind the ears, I didn't know very much. And I think I was more or less a part of the character that I portrayed on the Jack Benny show. 
Tonight, as we sat watching that movie, you held my hand, didn't you? I couldn't help it. Your perfume inflamed me. <laughs> All right. But have you ever sat in a darkened theater balcony with anyone else? Sure. And did you hold hands then? No. Why not? He was a fella. <laughs> Dennis, tell me the truth. How many girls have you ever gone out with? You mean altogether, counting you? Yes. One. His character was naive and often flat broke. He sang and worked as a soda jerk in the town of Weaverville. After the new year, the show moved to Wednesdays. And in this episode, broadcast on February 12th, 1947, Dennis's girlfriend Mildred is worried that if Day marries her without dating other women, he might quickly come to regret it. The next morning, Dennis is at work when he gets a big surprise. Good morning, Willoughby's Drugstore. Oh, yes, Mrs. Willoughby. Huh? No, he isn't in yet. Oh, yes, ma'am. I'll have him call you the minute he gets here. Yes, ma'am. Goodbye. Morning, Dennis. Morning, Mr. Willoughby. Your wife just... Say, how come you're wearing hip boots and fishing clothes and got those two poles on your shoulder? Yes. <laughs> you're going fishing? Good boy. Very first try. Oh, anyone could have done it. Your wife wants you to call her right away, Mr. Willoughby. She says it's very important. I kind of thought she'd be calling. That's why I'm going fishing. And I've already left, Dennis. Do you understand? Yes, sir. Trouble on the home front? Plenty. My lodge had a banquet and meeting last night. The bald eagles, Nest 53. <laughs> and I got home at 4 a.m. My wife didn't care particularly for the way I walked through our front door. No? No. She thinks I should have opened it first. Gosh. And that isn't all. Imagine what she'll say when she learns that we had a line of chorus girls to entertain us at the party. Women, Dennis. Yeah, I know. Chorus girls always are. <laughs> You're so right. And if memory serves, I got rather friendly with one of the dear creatures in a, a perfectly harmless way, of course. Oh, your wife wouldn't mind that. The average woman wants her man to test his love for her. Oh, really? Well, my wife happens to be well below average. <laughs> I guess I'm luckier than you that way. Undoubtedly. Now, if you run to the back of the store and make me up a few liverwurst sandwiches to take along, I'll be on my way. Yes, sir. I'll have them right away for you, Mr. Willoughby. Oh, my head. Why do I do these things? Hello, little bald eagle. Eep! <laughs> Remember me from last night? Little old Dixie with the cute little sexy? We, uh, uh, yes. Uh, yes, indeed. How are you, friend? Friend? That isn't what you called me last night. All right. Snuggle poo. <laughs> better. Remember you told me to look you up sometime? Well, here I am. Oh. Did I say that? Uh-huh. A friend of mine stopped a picture at the party last night. I thought you might like to see it. Or, uh, perhaps your wife would. A picture? A group picture? Mm -hmm. Just you and me, sugar. Why, that's a small group, isn't it? <laughs> 
Were we close together? I was sitting on your lap. That's fairly close together. <laughs> Isn't it? It's such a nice picture, I want you to have it. That is... If uh... I pay for it. Oh, you're a quick one. And after all, what's $50 to a man like you? Fifty? Owning a big drugstore and all No, 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 wait a minute. I, 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 I lied to you. I, I, I don't own the store at all. Huh? And I, I just work here. The, the real boss is... Say, if I put you next to a real sucker, uh, will you give me that picture? Who is he? The head of the whole drug chain. Why, 50 bucks is dirt with a guy like that. He's good for thousands. His name is Dennis Day. And he's right here in the store now. Oh, a big tycoon, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now, give me the picture. Well, okay. But this guy better be all you say, sugar. Oh, he is, he is. Only, don't be surprised if he seems a little puzzled or bewildered at first. He, he puts on a dopey act to fool people. <laughs> oh, that's okay, honey. I prefer him dopey. I picked you out, didn't I? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I... Oh, oh, I hear him coming. I better get out of here. Hey, hey, good luck. Here's your sandwiches all ready for you, Mr... Why, where's Mr. Willoughby? Oh, who cares? When there's a great, big, gorgeous hunk of stuff like you around. Love bundle. Who? Me? <laughs> mm, are you a dreamboat? Come here, you beautiful stick of dynamite. Who? Me? I'll say you really send me dream man. Who? I? Oh, now, beautiful. Is that all you can say to a girl? You can be nice. Come on, try. Would you care for a liverwurst sandwich? <laughs> Baby, can't you see this thing is too big for either of us? You're not going to fight it, are you? I don't know. Am I mad at it? <laughs> Dollface, don't you know what's happened? I think I do. My personality's burst out. I'll say it has. I was warned that someday it would. You desire me, huh? I can't live without you, gorgeous. But I love another. At least I think I do. Say, this may be my chance to find out. Would you care to take part in a very interesting scientific test? Well, if it's with you, yes. I want you for my own darling for always and always. Be careful. This may be mere infatuation on your part, although I doubt it. <laughs> no. It's the real thing. I know it is. What do you feel for me, dearest? Amazement. Is that all? I'm not so hard to take, Dreamboat. Look me over carefully. You are kind of pretty. How about my figure, lover boy? It's quite female. <laughs> Thank you. Now, uh, what's this test you're talking about? Well, could you be at the Anderson boarding house around 8 tonight? We'll spend the evening just the way Mildred and I always do, listening to the radio. I'll know after that whether I love you or her. Is that all you and this Mildred do when you're home alone? <laughs> Listen to the radio? Sure. When her folks are out, we can turn on any, any program we want to. 
Well, I uh, thought you and I might do something a little more exciting tonight, like playing games. Okay, I'll have the Parcheesi board all set up. <laughs> well, it's a date. And now can I use your phone, sweet star? Oh, sure. There's one in the back of the store. Mm, thanks. I'll find it. Hello. Sam, this is Dixie. Listen, I got the prize sucker of all time. Willoughby? Better. A rich kid that's never been kissed or taken. Tonight he gets both. <laughs> we pull the old badgy game, huh? Right. I'll have in my arms at the Anderson boarding house on Elm. At 8.25, you rush in as the angry husband will shake him down for every cent he's got. <laughs> great, kid, great. I'll be there at 8.25 on the dock. Bye-bye. Did you get your party okay? Oh, yes. I told my old gray-haired mother I'd be home a little late. Well, <laughs> till tonight, brown eyes, you and I. All alone. Gee, say, I don't even know your name. It's Dixie, honey. And after tonight, you'll remember it for a long, long time. <laughs> Good night, you beautiful hunk of... Gosh, Mildred may be right. These may be the best years of my life. <laughs> The Climax features some of the best Hollywood radio acting talent, including Paula Winslow, Tony Barrett, Gloria Blondell, and Kathy Nelliott-Lewis, in a scene that pushed the boundaries of acceptable radio decorum. All pulled off because Day's are. character is such All a bumbling alone. simpleton. I guess you know that I like you a great deal, Dennis. Well, here we go again. Oh, but I do. But you shouldn't, Mrs. Willoughby. You've got to fight it. Fight it? You're a married woman. You promised to love, honor, and cherish Mr. Willoughby. Start cherishing. Oh. Why, Dennis, you seem to be under a false impression. I don't feel about you in that way at all. You mean you're not in love with me? No. Is that possible? It is. I think of you only as a, as a very dear friend. Well, what do you know? And I hoped you felt the same way toward me, Dennis, because uh, there's a little favor you could do for me, if you would. Oh, sure, gladly. Well, I want to have our pictures snapped together for sentimental reasons. Okay, you get a picture of you and I'll get one of me and we'll snap them together. <laughs> I, I mean, I'd like a picture of the two of us taken together. Oh, well, I guess that can be arranged. Oh, good. You have no idea how worried... Oh, someone at the door. I No, go don't get up. I know who it is. It's someone I've been expecting. Put your arms around me, quick. Huh? I said, put your arms around me. Mrs. Willoughby, I'm getting that false impression again. <laughs> Dennis, will you stop arguing and kiss me? Kiss you? Yes. Put your lips to mine and yell, come in. <laughs> it won't come out very clear. Oh. Oh, well, for goodness sakes. All right, I'll answer it. Hello, I'm from the Bonton Department Store. Uh, Mrs. Willoughby told me to come to this address and take a picture. Is that right? Yes. Yes. My husband's in the next room. Will you follow me, please? Dennis, uh, this gentleman is a photographer. Boy, you sure are a woman of action. Well, I'm ready. You, huh? I thought you'd be a much older man. Me? Oh, no. I've never been any older than this. Would you make this just as fast as you can, please? We haven't got much time. Yes, ma'am, I'm all set. Put your arms around this, sir, and hold her as close as possible. 
But isn't that kind of intimate? Sure, that's the idea. But suppose my girlfriend sees it. What'll she think? Well, Dennis, we won't worry about that. Say, you're really broad-minded, lady. Please, let's just get on with the picture. We don't have very much... Oh, Come in. Dennis, darling. Dixie. Am I late? Who's she? Another girlfriend of mine, a different one. Oh. Why ain't my family like this? <laughs> Dream boy, let's get rid of all these characters and listen to that radio. Well, I like that. Who's this old moose, gorgeous? <laughs> Dixie, please. This old moose happens to be my boss's wife. Well, just take me in your arms, honey, and tell her to beat it. Why, how dare you? I need Dennis, and I want him. He's mine. I saw him first. You did no such thing. I've known him for months. Well, I won't give him up. Gee, I'll never go out in public again without a mask on. <laughs> Dennis, tell this woman that you're mine. Dennis, tell her you're mine. I belong to all women, everywhere. Would a sweet, intelligent boy like this want with a woman like you, anyway? All I know is he's gorgeous, and I want him. Well, he's much too fine a person to be fought over like this. Yeah, I'm too fine a... You shut up. Excuse me. That's kind of interesting, you know. this boy up and that's final. Nor will I. I mean every word of it. What is all this noise I've been hearing? Dennis Day, come here. I'm sorry, Mrs. Anderson, but you'll have to wait your turn. <laughs> what? Well, I have... Dennis! Mildred. Hey, bud, you're going to get in trouble. you got a monopoly. <laughs> Why, what does all this mean, Dennis? Mildred, it isn't my fault, honest. I've inflamed the mad desires of two women and they can't control themselves. Dennis, you mean you... We should have sold tickets. <laughs> oh, my gosh, it must be Sam. Ah, you homewrecker. So I find you in a lonely rendezvous with... With... With two men and four women? No, you, Sam, we're out of luck. Let's get out of here. Well, I'll say, come on, I'm leaving, too. I should figure who's married to who in this setup. <laughs> well, there goes my refrigerator, thanks to Dennis Day. Me? Mrs. Willoughby, what I you... shall speak to my husband about you, young man. Good night. Mrs. Anderson, what did she... Don't bother me. I'm going to bed. Mildred, what are they... Your... Oh, women. Oh, you beast. You cat. I never want to see you again. Mildred, I... Oh, gosh. Well, I might as well go to bed, too. In fact, there's nothing else I can do. I think my personality went in again. In 1948, the program's rating peaked at a 16.1. Dennis Day continued to be a fixture on radio, with his own show until June 30th, 1951, and on Jack Benny's radio program, well into the 1950s. And further still, on Benny's television show and additional specials, into the 1970s. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company.
Dick Tracy started me off on this whole idea of an inner sanctum mystery. I had several doors which we always used. When you went into the police station, it was a different kind of door when they were breaking down a door mm. in a tenement. Or it was a different kind of door when they had the guys hooked in the basement of a building and they had to break a, a steel door or whatever. There was one door that I used whenever we were doing a mystery theme. We were going through a haunted house or we were going through some creaky place. This door creaked, it squeaked. No matter what we did, we could not make it function. And that door literally said to me, hey, hi, make me a star. I can run a series for you. Let me be the spokesman for you. And that's what literally happened, tongue in cheek, smart aleck-like. I said, I'm going to open that creaking door. That says more to me than the Ride of the Valkyrie played by the Chicago Philharmonic 200 <laughs> musicians. And I created the creaking door. That's what it was called. And the door opened and this anomalous unknown voice said, come in. Welcome. I dare you to sit on that tombstone. <laughs> and it was that tongue-in-cheek kind of coast-to-coast, coast, uh, it was a ghost-to-ghost -ghost network, <laughs> I'm forgetting my own gags. <laughs> By 1945, Inner Sanctum Mysteries was on CBS for Lipton's Tea, Tuesdays at 9 p.m. from New York. The original host, Raymond Edward Johnson, had left the cast and Paul McGrath took over. Each week, Hyman Brown employed some of the best New York radio talent. By using a group that was familiar one with the other, also you had a kind of group ensemble playing the sure. actors related to each other magnificently there was a warmth and a camaraderie and a respect in the studio that i don't think you find on any set or any stage anywhere else i'm very proud of that all of the people that i have ever worked with going back to the 30s are still with me Brown balanced the program's macabre humor with carefully chosen organ sounds, blood-curdling screams, and other heinous effects, creating some of the most iconic sounds on radio. I told you earlier that I gave his first job to a man like Irwin Shaw. Mm -hmm. All of his life, he said, his novels were successful because he learned about writing dialogue. Dialogue sets the scene, not long narrative. You set emotions by dialogue, not by long descriptive passages. The violence and gore got Brown in trouble with the FCC, who were concerned that youth might be unduly traumatized or might act out the horrors they heard. When Inner Sanctum Mysteries went on the air, I was attacked by every child study group in the United States. You're scaring your children, and they're, they're, they're frightened to death, and they're doing this and doing that, just the way you get today. All the child study groups attacked me and listener groups and inner sanctum was a howling smashing success and i wasn't about to go off the air so what i did was create my own psychiatric group that said this is good for children and we used my son i said barry and he would tell the story on i had it on on a tape that he would listen to inner sanctum mysteries and that yes daddy i had bad dreams sometimes but I didn't get up. 
until I dreamed them out good. Lipton Tea and Lipton Soup present Inner Sanctum Mysteries. Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. Welcome. Come right in. There's room enough for everybody. As a matter of fact, the more bodies, the better. <laughs> Don't be surprised by the gloom. It's our new paint job in black so the bloodstains won't show. Why, Mr. Host, that's an awful thing to say. Giving all these nice people the wrong impression about our oh, program. Oh, on the contrary, Mary. You know very well that our proceedings here are rather terrifying and our little family a bit on the gruesome. Of course, it used to be different in the old days of Inner Sanctum, but since then we grew some. <laughs> we have indeed, Mr. Host. But now, while you're busy making last-minute arrangements, I'm going to enjoy... This episode, Confession, originally aired on January 22nd, 1946. It starred New York radio legend Santos Ortega. He was a marvelous actor. Only the fondest memories. Ralph, you worked side-by-side side with him. Sandy was family to me. It was easy to have an actor like Jack Smart come in, weigh 350 pounds, and you'd say he could play a fat man. Well, that's not fat because we couldn't see him on radio. I wanted Sandy because he was well-spoken, Nero was an elegant man, and Sandy had good speech and good presence. I said, Sandy, how are we going to play this fat man? What do I do for a signature? If you remember the signature, it's a fat man laughing. But Sandy, the first thing you heard was this. I can't do it. He did it magnificently. more flavorful tea soon. It's Lipton tea. Brisk flavored Lipton tea. And now, friends, draw up your chairs. Dim the lights and listen to a story designed to freeze the spine and set the teeth on edge. It was written by Michael Sklar and Richard Manoff, and it's called The Confession. Our star is Santa Sotega, who plays the role of Alex. The last thing I remembered was the gunshot, the thud of the bullet, and the burning pain in my stomach. And everything got black. When I regained consciousness, my impression was of blinding whiteness. There, don't try to move, Mr. Sturgis. Where am I? This is the emergency ward of the General Hospital. I felt no pain. Just an overall numbness and a desire to sleep. Am, am I going to die? Yes. How much time have I got? A couple of hours. Doctor, I... I want to make confession. I want to confess to... murder. I told the doctor about the money. And I know... she was much younger than I. And she thought because I owned a little drugstore, I must be prosperous. 
I suppose that's why she married me, in spite of the difference in our ages. But there wasn't any money for fun or nice clothes. So she became restless. But I loved her. And I did my best. Until the other night. In the drugstore. Uh, it's 12 o'clock, thank heaven. Time to close up, Alex. Five more minutes, dear. Another customer might come along. <laughs> Just like an old man chasing pennies, never getting anything out of life. Be reasonable, dear. I'm trying to make a living for it. Is this your idea of a living? Is this what you promised me before we were married? I know it's not what you deserve, Lenore, but someday... Oh, you make me sick. I must have been crazy when I married you. Lenore. I'm going to say something I've had on my mind for a long time, Alex. Rather than go on this way, I'd prefer to be dead. <sighs> Look at you. I don't have to put up with you. I'm still young, Alex. So there it was. Out in the open. An old man with money would have been acceptable. But because I had no money, she was going to leave me. I wanted to plead with her. I would have gotten down on my knees. But before I could say anything, the street door opened. And a man stumbled into the store. Oh, Alex, look! Help me, quick. I'm wounded. I helped the man to a chair. He'd been shot on the chest, and the front of his coat was covered with blood. His breathing came hard. Bullet, my chest. Patch me up. I'm only a pharmacist. You need a doctor. Uh, I'll call Dr. Johnson. No, no, I don't want any doctor. I want you to help me. Is it because doctors must report bullet wounds? Is that why you want a doctor? Never mind my reason. I got plenty of dough. I'll give you $500 to take care of me. Well, I'd better call the police. No, lady, no. Look, mister, take care of me. Keep it quiet. I'll give you a thousand. thousand dollars? Let me see the money. Here. Here's a thousand dollar bill. But I got plenty more. Oh, no. Help me take him into the back room. Oh, but Alex... No, I'll take him myself. You get busy and wipe the blood off the floor. Oh, no. No, you can't. Wipe up the blood. Do as I say, Lenore. So long. I'm looking for a certain medicine among these bottles. Give me something to stop the bleeding. Hurry. I'll be ready for you soon. Well, Lenore, did you get the floor clean? Yes, it's clean. How is he? He's in bad shape. Weak from loss of blood. Alex, you, you haven't done anything for him yet. Be quiet. But you've been in here five minutes and he's just like he was before. Alex, you're stalling. Uh, oh, Let him lay there. But, but he's dying. I know. Alex, call the police. No. Are you going to let him die? Yes. But that's as bad as murder. I didn't shoot him. It's not my fault if he dies. Lenore, he's got money. Thousands of dollars. No one knows he came here. This is our chance, Lenore. What do you mean? I'm going to let him die. Take his money. And then... Get rid of his body. He lay still. I stooped and went through his jacket. There was a wallet containing a few one-dollar bills and a driver's license, which I handed to Lenore. Hmm. His name is James Kirk. He lives in Hillsborough. His pockets were crammed full of bills of large denominations. Lenore watched, fascinated, as I counted him. How much is it, Alex? A little over $78,000. We're rich, Lenore. Oh, 
I'm frightened. There's nothing to be afraid of. All we have to do now is wait until he dies and get rid of the body. In those days, in 46, 47, right after the war, we still had speakers that were made out of a kind of paper. The back of the speaker was a kind of parchment paper thing. Kind of a filament. That's right. Whatever it was, the overtones of the laugh would rattle the speaker. So not only did I have an actor who was saying to you, Nero Wolf is on the air, your home speaker said to you, hey, there's a different show on the air. And Sandy then, of course, was able to... He could do almost anything. No, 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 that's murder. Call it what you like. We've gone too far now to stop. You wait in the car. I'm going to carry him to the edge of the pier and drop him over the side. He's gone. I watched Kirk's body sink into the water. I knew the current in the bay would carry it out to sea. One doesn't picture a middle-aged druggist committing a perfect crime. But I felt sure that I had done it. For I had Kirk's money. And it seemed that no one could connect his death to me. I rejoined Lenore in the car. Started for home. After I'd driven for a few minutes, I noticed she was strangely quiet. What's the matter, dear? Nothing. Nothing at all. Something's troubling you. What is it? Nothing. You act as though you're afraid of me. Uh, no. You are afraid of me. No. Why? I never saw you act this way before. Something's happened to you. You're different. Oh, nonsense. Don't you feel it, Alex? You're a murderer. No. You wouldn't even wait until he was dead. Listen to me, Lenore. Whatever I did, I did for your sake. I wanted the money for you. So you could be happy. Oh, how can I be happy with this... this thing hanging over us? We had breakfast the next morning in absolute silence. Then Lenore went to open the store. While I wrapped the money in a parcel. Took it to the bank. Placed it in my box in the safe deposit vault. No one paid any attention to me. Although the bank was swarming with police detectives. From the bank, I went directly to the drugstore. And found a man there waiting for me. Mr. Sturgis. Yes? Bigard is my name. Mark Bigard. What can I do for you? I'm an insurance company detective, Mr. Sturgis. I'm investigating the first national bank robbery for my company. I want you to tell me everything you know about that robbery. Inner Sanctum Mysteries left such an indelible mark on Hyman Brown that he twice tried to revive the format. First in 1959 with the NBC Radio Theater, and again in 1974 with the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. Just the man to go to if you have to fill a prescription for murder. Well, we've certainly had plenty of prescriptions for murder.
With so much greatness happening in audio fiction, it can be hard to find the best of the best. So why not have someone do the work for you? On Radio Drama Revival, our team of experts showcase the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. And then we ask the creators the questions you'd want to ask. Their relationship is important to you. I'm shipper trash, David, you can say it. It's okay. <laughs> And my question to you is, can it be Keisha time? Like, what do you dream about achieving not only for your neighborhood, but for yourself? Mm. Oh, day. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe before you realize you'd want to ask them. Do you think souls exist? I personally do. When I ask you to visualize time, what do you see? Yeah, okay. I guess I've got quite a dark sense of humor in some ways. Um, Do you feel that you think about death more often or differently than you would otherwise now that you've been playing these characters? Find great new audio fiction by finding us at radiodramarevival.com. You remember a show that he did called One Out of Seven? One Out of Seven? It was a very liberal show in which he played all the voices, he did all the parts. In fact, I remember one show very vividly. They would dramatize the weekly events of the news and usually take one story, the one out of seven that was worth doing, and they would do it in a very hard-hitting way. And I remember the one, you mentioned Senator Bilbo a while ago, and I think I remember one where he just devastated the man. Ladies and gentlemen, the material and direct quotations included in the following program have been taken from authoritative files and from dispatches filed by the Associated Press and International News Service. We present these statements without editorial comment. We assume no responsibility for their content. The American Broadcasting Company presents One Out of Seven. On February 2nd, 1946, ABC premiered a 15-minute serial from KGO in San Francisco called One Out of Seven. It starred a 25-year-old actor named Jack Webb. 24 hours make a day, seven days make one week. And from these past seven days, the editors here in our San Francisco newsroom have chosen the one story which they have judged most worthy of retelling. This is One Out of Seven. Theodore Gilmore Bilbo is an honorable man. As a member of the United States Senate, he is looked upon as such by the eyes of the law. Perhaps he is looked upon as such by many or most of his constituents. Though his voice occasionally grate upon the nerves, and his views often confound the innocent, the fact remains, as a member of the Senate of the United States, Theodore Gilmore Bilbo is an honorable man, and we do not intend to prove otherwise. We merely wish to cite a few samples of his handiwork and perhaps a supplementary side glance or two just for the sake of contrast. Adjust your dials most carefully, citizens. Herewith presenting Senator Theodore Bilbo, picture number one. He was born in Santa Monica, California on April 2nd, 1920 and grew up in a Bunker Hill boarding house run by his Irish and Native American mother, Margaret. But it's a job that you just have to do. One of their tenants was a former jazz musician who gave Jack a record of Bix Biederbecks at the jazz band ball. Their bombers are still paying us visits. He became an instant fan. 
And it still doesn't look like the war is going to be over soon. He attended high school near downtown Los Angeles and St. John's University in Minnesota, where he studied art. I know. Following his World War II discharge from the U.S. Army Air Corps, he moved to San Francisco, where a shortage of radio announcers led to an opportunity. Webb used it to showcase his dynamic acting while attacking bigots and hate merchants, like the Mississippi Senator Theodore G. Bilbo. But back in the chamber of the United States Senate, Theodore Bilbo thought differently. I have it on good authority, and from some of the highest-ranking generals in our army, that our Negro troops overseas are an utter and abysmal failure. When Senator Bilbo made that statement, he was standing under the roof of the United States Senate. It is very safe in the United States Senate. A bomb hasn't fallen there for quite some time. You must understand, please, this is merely a portrait, an interesting portrait, of a duly elected representative of the American people. For you see, Theodore Bilbo is an honorable man, and we do not wish or intend to prove otherwise. Here is picture number four. Although one out of seven was soon canceled, ABC gave Webb his own show. It premiered on Wednesday, March 20th, 1946, at 9.30 p.m. The following is transcribed. No, it isn't. The following is transcribed. No, it isn't. Oh, yes, it is. It is not. Yes, it is. It is not. It is, too. It is not. It is. It isn't. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. The following is not transcribed. This week, the Major League Baseball season opened. In keeping with this, the American Broadcasting Company brings you the first foul ball of the season. It's the Jack Webb Show in its fifth consecutive strikeout. (laughs) Nothing new has been added. The Ragged Airs will play tonight, but without their director, Phil Bavero, who only confused the men anyway. That spiritual singer, Clancy Hayes, of the firm of Haig and Haig and Hayes, will conduct his usual contest with the orchestra. She's young, she's pretty, she sings. That's three runs for our side, vocalist Nora McNamara. John Galbraith, an Oakland boy, and the only argument we can think of against the Bay Bridge, will play rats and second lieutenants and spooky people, and, oh yes, a wonderful gal with a wonderful voice has made a terrible mistake tonight. Midge Williams has agreed to set a career back ten years with a guest appearance on the Jack Webb Show. (laughs) My name is Jordan, and I'm going to find a nice, quiet room until this thing blows over. Why don't you do the same? The show was purposely off-kilter. The routines were packed with absurd one-liners, and Webb's love of Dixieland music was front and center. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. How are all our listeners out there? Both of you. John Galbraith, put your glasses on so you can find the microphone and come on over here, will you? Oh, Jack, my, 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 boy, that's certainly a healthy crop of freckles you picked up in the San Francisco sunshine. What do you mean, freckles? Those are the holes in the microphone. Put them on, put them on, will you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, of course, how stupid of me, Jack. Your head doesn't say ABC on it, does it? <laughs> Neither do yours, John. <laughs> Don't we have a grand studio audience here tonight, John? Do you know who these boys are? Who are the girls? Finally got the... <laughs> 
Oh, you finally got those glasses on, huh, John? Well, these men are 200 Army patients from Letterman General Hospital here in San Francisco. And most of them have only been in this country four days. Some of them one day. Uh... <laughs> Jack, who are the girls? I think we ought to have some ruffles and flourishes for the generals here tonight. Who are the girls? Welcome home, generals. the girls? <laughs> the girls, John. Oh, say. Yeah. There's 75 hostesses from the Oak Street USO. Aren't they, though? Yeah, well, I guess we ought to have some ruffles and flourishes for them, too, you know? Yeah. They've already got the, uh, ruffles. Let's just have the flourishes, shall we? Webb soon met singer and actress Julie London. The couple was married in 1947. Jack's best friend was fellow actor Herb Ellis. We grew up he went to one high school, I went to the other, and we became friends, and we worked at Bullock's men's shop. Go slow. Ooh. We did... Jack Webb? Yeah. He sold clothes. Silverwoods, I'm sorry. Did I say Bullock's? God. And uh, he went in the Air Force, and I went in the Army. Jack Webb married a lady by the name of Julie London. I threw them their marriage party in San Francisco. She had just come out in a picture called Taproots. One of the Jack Webb show writers was Dick Bream. The two soon collaborated on Pat Novak for Hire, one of the most hard-boiled detective programs of all time. It was a cult hit, airing on ABC's Pacific Coast Network. Fellow actress Lillian Bayef remember first hearing of Jack. I remember Jack Webb before Dragnet. As a matter of fact, Herb Ellis was living in San Francisco at the time. He and Jack were very good friends. And when Jack was coming to Los Angeles, Herb called me and said, meet him at, I don't forget which studio, and audition for him. He's going to be doing a program called Pat Novak for Hire. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. And you remember the show? Yeah. So that's where I met Jack, I met Raymond Burr there, and a woman that I wonder if she's still around, her first name was Yvonne, a very, very low, sexy voice. Exactly. Is she still around? Yvonne Patey. Yeah. Remember. You remember the voice? Yeah. Anyhow, that, that's my recollection of Jack Webb at first. Mexico to serve the West. G-A-L-L-E-N-K-A-M-P-S Gallon Caps present Pat Novak for Hire. sign out in front of my office says, Pat Novak for hire. Down on the waterfront in San Francisco, you always bite off more than you can chew. It's tough on your windpipe, but you don't go hungry. Down here, a lot of people figure it's better to be a fat guy in a graveyard than a thin guy in a stew. 
That way you can be sure of a tight fit. Oh, I rent boats and do anything else that makes a sound like money. It works out all right if your mother doesn't mind you coming home for Christmas in a box. I found that out Wednesday night about 9 o'clock. I closed the shop early and I came home to read. Well, it wasn't a bad book if you ever wanted to start a forest fire. It was one of those historical things and the girl in it was just getting her second wind and her third man when the door to my apartment opened and the place began to get crowded. From where I sat, the crowd looked good. She sauntered in, moving slowly from side to side like 118 pounds of warm smoke. Her voice was all right, too. It reminded you of a furnace full of marshmallows. Good evening. Yeah, thanks for knocking. I don't think you mind my coming in without warning. No. I get the cabbage smell from next door the same way. Does it pay to be that polite, Mr. Novak? Saves you the trouble of saying please. What's on your mind? That bottle in front of you. Will you pour me a drink? No. You'll save dough if you look up a bartender. All right. I came to use you instead of your whiskey anyway. Talk. My name is Lee Underwood. I'll give you $300 to do something for me. It'll only take an hour. That's too much dough unless it's murder. And if it is murder, it's not enough dough. Are you afraid? I just don't like paid murder. I told you. When you get caught, the pain gets expensive. If it were murder, I'd do it myself. Mr. Novak, I want you to frighten someone for me. Why don't you hire a friend? Are they too pretty? It's a man named Dixie Gillian. You'll find him in an office down on Folsom Street at this address. I promise nothing will happen to you. That's what they told Billy Kahn. He'll be in this office until 11 tonight. I want you to go in and see him, tell him you're from Adrian, and that he's to get out of town by tomorrow noon. Suppose he wants to put it off. He won't. Don't let him know who hired you. Just tell him Adrian said to leave. Yeah. You better go home. For 300 bucks, I won't buy a tissue paper plot. Now tell me more or say goodbye. There's not much more I can tell you, except there won't be any trouble. He's a rotten little beast, and I want him frightened badly. Why? He's been bothering my sister. Why doesn't he bother you? Because I bother back too fast. Do you want the 300, Mr. Novak? Yeah, it's going to be a long winter. Put it on the table. Good. And you'll need this, too. No, you keep it. I don't want a gun. It's empty. Don't worry. See? No shells. It's perfectly safe. Now, look. I've got a nasty disposition. You can rent that for 300 bucks. But if you want more, find a gunsel or an off-duty copper, will you? I don't want you to be a gunsel. That's why I want you to use this gun. I know it's empty. If you use it on Dixie, he'll scare fast. It's just a way to save some breath. All right. It's your 300. You better go now. Yeah. Wait till I get a coat, will you? If uh, your doorbell rings, don't play mouse. Oh? Because I may look you up. Am I too young to ask why? Because if anything goes wrong, I'll be around looking for you. From there on, it won't be nice. I'll dirty you up like a locker room towel. Relax, Patsy. You'll never learn to fall in love that way. She handed me the gun and walked out of my apartment. Seeing her leave made you feel like Frank Buck losing an argument. She walked with a nice, easy swing of a satisfied leopard, and for a small leopard, she had pretty good spots, too. I put the gun in my overcoat pocket, and I went down to Folsom Street. The address was down near the bridge entrance, and the street was deserted except for a couple of winos near the corner trying to buy back 1926 at a dollar a jug. I stopped in front of the place. It was a machinery company. I could see a light burning in the back. I began to walk through the place was so quiet you could hear a worm with whooping cough and there were enough shadows around to keep a ghost happy for years. When I got to the office back in the corner, through the glass, I could see a man sitting at the desk. When I opened the door and walked in, he didn't seem surprised. Come on in, mister. The bet on noise. Yeah? That's right. You make too much for a thief and not enough for a customer. What do you want? About ten words if you're Dixie Gillian. Go ahead. You better look up a timetable. What makes you that tough? This. Oh. 
Why do you look tougher with a gun? Does it make you talk faster? I'm going to say it slow, mister. Pack up your robbers and get out. Is that you talking or somebody else? I'm just the guy with a gun. Adrian does the talking. And he says get out. That's right. You've got the whole message now. All right, you told me. So wander out and spend your dough. I will. You'll need part of it, though, because I'm going to give you an answer for Adrian. I'm going to take that gun away from you, mister. You can pick the pieces out of your head on the way home. You better stand back or I'll share it with you. You got your offer, mister. Let's see you make good. Yeah. Save your muscle, Drop fella. Drop that gun, will you? Save your Drop muscle, the gun. fella. The gun's Drop empty. The gun. Somebody fooled us, mister. Sometimes you can get a home run with a half swing. That's the way it was this time. He couldn't have made it with a prayer book in both hands. He slid down to the floor and trembled for a moment and then flattened out like a leaf in a pool of water. Just before he died, he grabbed his side as if he didn't like the way it hurt. And then he didn't care. I rolled him on his back and let him look at the ceiling. His eyes were open and he looked surprised, like a guy who didn't figure on a change in the weather. There was a scar that ran across his forehead and dug deep into his hairline. And he was lying there with a bunch of pink gum showing as if he was trying to pick up a few bucks with a toothpaste ad. I didn't have time to tell him how sorry I was. Because if homicide caught me here, I'd have about as much chance as a canary in a basement full of cats. I started for the door. Right then, I knew I could start ordering birdseed. It was Hellman. And he walked over to have a look at the body. Hello, Novak. The guy looks embarrassed. Yeah, I guess he is, Hellman. What's he doing dead? Putting in a beef somewhere, I guess. He rates it. He'll like you for that, Novak. How did it happen? A team play. We worked it out together. But you've got the gun. That's right. I got the gun. You feel like a bet? No. Just keep stealing the old way. You know how I feel, Novak? Yeah, you feel flabby to anybody else, but to yourself, I suppose you feel good. Now, look. I walked in here with a gun. There was some quick fight talk, and I killed him, but it's still not a good rap. I can get a long price on it for you, Novak. I'll bet you can, Hellman. You can give me a bad deal, but part of the time it'll be from the other side of the deck. Worse than that, Novak. It'll be all the time, and I want to watch it because I think you're going to be a crybaby. I'm going to scream, if that's what you mean, Hellman. I'm going to scream about a gal that sent me in here with an empty gun. That's a big hole for a cap pistol, Novak. I got a last-minute curve. It was empty once. Yeah. That's the only way they make a gun, Novak. I don't want you for an hour ago. I want you for this dead guy on the floor. All right, all right. I told you I didn't come in here to kill the guy. I don't know him. He may even be a good guy. I'm sorry he's dead. All right, Novak. Just wait a few weeks and you can tell him personally. Early in 1947, Pat Novak's success took Jack Webb back home to Los Angeles. Then subsequently moved down here, and I used to come down and stay with them and then go back to San Francisco. One time, there was a show the Army used to do, Will Scott directing. And Will Scott used to give all the actors a chance to be the star of this Armed Forces radio show. One week, Herb Weigman would be the star, Herb Ellis could have two lines, and... On this particular show, I was the star, starring Herb Ellis as so-and-so, The Armed Forces Presents, and Jack Webb had a little part. And I said, oh my gosh, we better do something. So I go to Will Scott, and I say, Will, you got to do me a favor. i got to tell you something, that Jack Webb was living in my house, having split with Julie London, and had moved in. So we drove in one car to this radio broadcast. And I went to Will Scott, and I said, Will... I know my friend for many, many years, and I would appreciate it very much if you let him be the star and will scratch out all the things and let me play his part. He says, no, he says, that's foolish, he's done. Jack, we did the show, Jack Webb got in his car and drove away and left me at Radio Recorders on Santa Monica and Orange, and I lived in San Gabriel. (laughs) 
And I said, I called a couple hours later and I said, Jack? Yeah. I'm at uh, Radio Recorders. <laughs> I'll take a bus to downtown. <laughs> and I said, what are you mad at me for? <laughs> I didn't do it. He said, you're right. Stay there, I'll come and get you. <laughs> but that's one of the things that happened. <laughs> yes. There was only one problem. ABC was still airing Pat Novak from San Francisco with Ben Morris in the title role. So on April 24th, 1947, over the Mutual Broadcasting System, Dick Breen and Jack Webb premiered Johnny Modero, Pier 23. It was Webb's first coast-to-coast performance. Yeah, I'm Johnny Modero, Pier 23. You know... The only time San Francisco really gets hot is when a tourist calls it Frisco, and then it gets warm enough to give a sleigh dog a southern accent. Down around the waterfront, they don't care so much. And for a buck, you can insult anybody but Joe DiMaggio. The piers stretch out like a big yawn from south of the ferry building clear to the China docks. You pushed over on one side so you won't notice about the same spot you'll find dust in a bride's parlor. You find Pier 23. From there, it's a short skip to Johnny Madero's boat shop. My place. The sign outside looks honest, but down here, the only sign people pay any attention to is rigor mortis. I rent boats and do anything else you can blame on your environment. It works out all right. But pretty soon word gets around and you've got a reputation. And it doesn't pay to argue, because even if you're leveling, you make as much headway as a whistler with a split lip. I found that out last Wednesday afternoon. I was looking out the window watching the tide come in when somebody in back of me coughed. When I turned, Nat Friendly was standing there in the office. He didn't say anything for a minute, and you noticed his eyes were as soft as the inside of a woman's arm. They had one of those faraway looks you couldn't follow with a road map. And then I saw the rest of him. He wasn't flabby, but he was on the way. And you got the idea he was an ex-fighter who settled down with a restaurant. I, uh, I got the right place, haven't I? If a woman screams you haven't, what's on your mind? <laughs> that's a good question, Madero. That's a good question. Uh, that's what I want you to find out. Look, fella, maybe I don't even want to be friendly. What's on your mind? I don't know, Madero. I don't know. All right, you convinced me. Now back out of here and we'll both be in the dark. Wait a minute, Madero. Listen to me. Uh, My name is uh, Nat Finley. My wife and I live up on Knob Hill, and I've been retired for a while, see? I don't, but go ahead. Well, you got to help me, Madero. I'll pay you 50 bucks a day to help me. At that price, it won't be help. I want you to find someone for me, but I don't know who or why yet. We're back to that again, huh? Oh, listen to me. Lately, a name's been ringing in my ears. Just a name. Pete Sucho. Pete Sucho. Over and over again. So you read it somewhere. I don't know where I picked it up. For the last week, the name Pete Sucho has been on my mind. It's a, it's a nightmare. You've got to do something about it, Nadeo. Change your diet. That might help. I want you to find Pete Sucho. Find out who he is, where he is, why he's bothering me. If you do, I'll, I'll give you a $200 bonus. Look, Finley, is this a job or a career? There must be a dozen Sucho's from here to Jersey City. Maybe, but the Pete Sucho I want lives right here in this town. He's got to. There's a law? Now listen to me, Nadeo. Last night, I, I kept hearing the name Sucho again. Only this time, there was an address, too. It was care of General Delivery, San Francisco. So he's got to be somewhere in this town. Why don't you check the phone book? I have, and the city directory, too. But so far, I haven't been able to locate him. And I will, huh? Well, if you don't, you're still getting 50 bucks a day. What are you worried about? That 50 bucks a day? It might turn out to be a dream, too. You better throw in some advance money. Sure, Mattel. I brought a check along, just in case. Will $100 cover your doubts? Yeah, if the bank can cover your check. If they can't, you don't have to do the job. That fair enough? Mm-hmm. Will you, will you start looking right away? Yeah. But you got to be careful, Madero. My wife's never to know about this, understand? Why? Because, well, she, uh, she doesn't like the idea. She, she thinks I'm a little crazy looking for a name like this. 
She hates me, I think. She thinks I'm crazy. Don't worry about her, Finley, until she starts mixing your nightcaps. Although the show only lasted until September 4th, it allowed Webb to work with some of the most talented people in Hollywood radio, like William Conrad and Gail Gordon. For 50 bucks a day, I'll chase anybody's dream, because with that kind of dough, you're rich enough to run down a couple of your own. Webb's name was also gaining popularity. He began to act for CBS, like on their sustaining high adventure series, Escape, with Jeanette Nolan. Yes, I did, did a dragnet. A radio dragnet? I did a dragnet. Really? Oh, yeah. A lot of them. Which was very thrilling, mm-hmm. but I had never done a dragnet. And I played a drunk. I can't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I had worked with Jack a lot of times before. You hear me? I got $15,000 American in 50s and 100s. How much you want? Well, what'll you give me? How much? Well, I figure 5000 would be fair. No touch. What? If that's all you want, I no touch. Why? Too hot. Well, if you think it's worth more... No touch. Okay, no touch. And on December 12th, 1947, during a brief period of Friday night airings after Roma Wines canceled their sponsorship, Webb made his first appearance, working for Bill Spear on Suspense. If you've ever kissed off $40,000, you know how I felt. But what was the use? Well, I still have my five grand and a bus ticket to Boston. You can't get all the breaks all the time, was what I figured then. So I got on the bus. Plenty of seats in the rear. This seat taken? No, not at all. Sit right down. Thanks. Well, well. Somebody must be feeling pretty good this afternoon. Huh? The guy that's got the I'm a winner ticket in the sweeps. I see it says there they'd pay him $40,000 for it right now. $40,000? Yeah. I'd sure like to be in his shoes, wouldn't you? Yeah. I see it says... Here. You want to read it? Well, you don't need to get sore. Give it. I... Holy board! All aboard! Hey, hey, stop! Let me out of here! I gotta get out of here! Well, make up your mind! I don't have to make up my mind, brother. I don't have to make up my mind. You did Jeff Regan with Jack Webb. Very early on. Jack and I uh, worked together at that time. We were, frankly, doing uh, another version of Pat Novak for hire. We used to do everything but get into fistfights over how things should go and so on. We're still very good friends. I see Jack now and then. We never did do anything in television together. My name is Regan. I get ten a day and expenses from a detective bureau run by a guy named Anthony J. Lyon. They call me the Lion's Eye. With Jack Webb as Jeff Regan, the Lion's Eye, stand by for hard-boiled action and mystery and thrilling adventure in tonight's story of the man who fought back. In July of 1948, Webb was back at it again with writer E. Jack Newman in a new detective series called Jeff Regan Investigator. It aired on CBS's West Coast Network, Saturday nights at 9.30 through December. There's a street crammed in between Wilton and Van Ness in Hollywood. It's called Taft Avenue a couple of blocks long and it only got there because the city planners had a few tons of cement left over from the Coliseum. On the corner, there's a gray building poking its way up through a crack in the pavement. That's where I live. Apartment K. 
Two rooms with a connecting door to a broom closet. Oh, the place isn't much. A couple of chairs and a bed that comes out of the wall. And a mattress that could pass itself off as a relief map of the high Sierras. The writers were good, well, but none of the shows after Novak had packed the same punch. My phone began making an impression. It turned out to be the lion. Hey, Regan, I'm glad I found you home. Are you alone? Jack Webb was getting bored. Jack did a picture, a movie, he had a small part uh, where they had a technical assistance from a police officer all during the picture. And Jack began to talk to that police officer. And the more he talked to him, the more the idea grew in his head. That summer, Webb was cast as a forensic specialist in the film He Walked by Night. During production, he became friends with the police technical advisor, Detective Sergeant Marty Wynn. Their conversations became the inspiration for a new police procedural, one that would become one of the most famous shows in radio and TV history and turn Jack Webb into an American icon. Did you ever write any dragnet for him? I must tell you how you can make some big slips in your life. Jack and I, after all of the fighting and arguing, and we lived together too. While we were doing Jeff Regan, Jack said, I've got this great idea for a program called Dragnet. And I want to do this, I want to do that, and so on and so on, and I've got to, you know, I think I've got to deal with NBC, and I want you to do the audition. And I said, that's a terrible idea. I don't want to have anything to do with it. <laughs> Network Radio opened the 1948-49 season, fresh off its 14th consecutive year of record earnings. But television's market surge had begun. By December of 1948, more than 10,000 homes were turning on TVs each month. Soon, over a million U.S. homes had sets. It's no coincidence that collectively, the top 50 rated radio programs lost an average of a million listeners. The Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. gentlemen, today marks Jack Benny's first program on the Columbia Broadcasting System. So let's go back a couple of hours and pick up Jack and Mary on their way to the studio. Rochester is driving. <laughs> Not so fast, Rochester. Don't cross the double line. Look out for that car. 
What's the matter with you? I'm driving as carefully as I can, boss. Well, just watch it, that's all. Oh, for heaven's sake, Jack, calm down. Don't be so nervous. I'm not nervous. Then stop pacing up and down on the running board. <laughs> okay, Mary, I'll admit it. I am nervous, and you can't blame me. Today's my opening broadcast on CBS. All right, so you're opening on CBS. What do you mean, all right? Do you realize it's the first time my program will be heard in Alaska? Well, so what? I've yet to see a walrus smoking a lucky strike. <laughs> oh, yeah? I saw one last night. <laughs> that was Jerry Colonna. <laughs> I'll have to apologize. I threw him a fish. <laughs> anyway, Mary, this is no time for joking. I'm upset. Oh, for heaven's sake, Jack. Why should you be worried? You must have a million dollars down in your vault. I know, but I don't want to break up the serial numbers. <laughs> In early 1949, NBC found itself in the unfamiliar position as the nation's number two network. I don't want to have an accident on the way to the studio. Now slow down. I'm only going 12 miles an hour. Don't give me that. What does it say on the speedometer? By then, CBS's president was Frank Stanton. I suppose that the radio network really came into its own after World War II when we went very heavily into doing our own programs. Up until that time, almost all of the programs in the schedule were produced by outside organizations, bought by the advertiser, delivered to us by the advertising agency, and the advertiser was really in control of the schedule. When Mr. Paley came back from the war, he seized that opportunity to embark upon the development of our own programs, which would be owned by the company and sold to the advertiser. With that one concept and the implementation of it, network radio changed from an advertiser-dominated medium to a broadcaster-dominated medium. CBS had overtaken their rivals thanks to a willingness to push new programs. They also allowed stars like Amos and Andy and Jack Benny incorporate as businesses and sell their shows to the network. This saved the stars millions in taxes under capital gains laws. NBC had spent years letting their dramatic programming atrophy. They responded by hiring Young and Rubicam's head of radio, Sylvester Pat Weaver, to be the new NBC president. He immediately gave opportunities to rising stars. In January of 1949, Jack Webb intimated to Radio Life that his days of playing guys like Novak were almost over. His next character would be called Joe Friday. Working uh, radio with Jack Webb was an interesting experience. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you sat there during rehearsal time, and everybody caught up on what everybody else was doing, and then you got up and recorded the show. Cold. That was toward the end. That was, yeah, First, you used to get a run-through, and then at the end, you didn't even read it. He'd hand you the script and say, you're doing Aunt Georgia, and you're doing Uncle Harry, and you're Ben, and so forth. Okay, let's cut. He wanted that fresh reaction. He got it. He got it. <laughs> he and if yeah, you were, yeah. and I'd say, well, how that old is she? Seeing what, what it for the first time. Find out is she know. nice or is she bad? He'd say, well, she's 50 and uh, yeah, you like her. Try something. <laughs> so you do, and if he doesn't stop you after about four or five sentences, you know you've You're hit close. a character <laughs> and hope you can remember how you started because you don't know what's coming up. I had a conflict one done. time, I was working at CBS and I had a job on Dragnet as fast as I could get over there and as I walked into the studio, Jack says, all right, let's go. 
And I walked up, he handed me a script, I walked up to the microphone and I was playing an informer and there was a scene in a park. We were sitting on a bench talking. Jack says, I got a great idea. I think we'll eat peanuts during this thing. It'll, get, it'll end a nice touch. And he hands me a flock of peanuts and I've got a script in one hand, absolutely cold. I haven't even seen the title on the thing yet. So we better put the script up on a music stand, which we did. And I sat there eating peanuts, trying to figure out what I was going to say and who I was going to say it as. That was working with Jack Webb. It was yeah. very loose. Oh, but those early days when, when the show was sustaining and when Bill Russo was directing and we all knew that Bill's days were numbered because <laughs> Jack really knew exactly how he wanted it done and, and having another director there was superfluous and he developed a technique which was very innovative at the time where we would hear actually the sirens in the street outside on Sunset Boulevard going by because he turned the pots up so open that you could pick up all the background noises and he wanted that sound for the realism instead of the talking into the paper as all the rest of the shows sounded at that time. I think that he really did his most creative work in mm-hmm. those early, early days. And he had Jim Moser. Yeah. Oh, the greatest writer of yeah. radio, Jim Moser. Mm-hmm. James Moser. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel... When Dragnet premiered on June 3, 1949, it was the first of its kind. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, this is the story of your police force in action. Dragnet. It marked the culmination of over a year's worth of development for Jack Webb. He hung out at police stations, took night classes, and rode with detectives. Webb was now fluent in cop terminology and technique. I was a big part of Dragnet. I did the original audition, Barton Yarbrough, do you remember that name? And Jack Webb and Charlie McGraw, bless his heart, he Mm. played a man by the name of Captain Ed Backstrand. I opened the show announcing it, introduced Jack, who introduced Bart, who introduced the captain. I closed it off, I, I took the show upstairs, to a gentleman named Harry Bubeck, who was then the program director on the Pacific Coast, and a friend of mine who had worked in San Francisco. We kind of like gravitated down about the same time. He came to a permanent job. I came to walking the streets. And he bought the show. And that's how Dragnet went on the air. NBC skeptically greenlit an audition. They thought the idea sounded flat. The booze, sexual innuendo, and shootouts were what made detective shows interesting. Webb knew he needed cooperation from the police. Surprisingly, he got it. So long as Webb didn't go out of his way to portray the LAPD in a negative light, they'd allow him to use closed case files. 
projected everything. He, you know, had boundless energy and paid enormous attention to everything. It was a seven-day-a-week, 24-hour-a-day job for him. And uh, he delivered something that we're all used to now, but then it was so startling and so new, it was incredibly successful. The same thing when it became a television show. Jack Webb has contributed a great deal to uh, both radio and television in technique and attitude, attack, everything, you know. And what looks old hat to us now was very fresh and new once, and, and it gave us all the guidance to do other things. By the time Benny Trounsel Narcotics, Dragnet's ninth show, aired on August 4th, 1949, the program had found its now famous signature sound. Barton Yarborough played Sergeant Ben Romero, and Raymond Burr was the chief, Ed Backstrand. Here's another in NBC's great parade of new shows. <laughs> The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. NBC brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to narcotics detail. For more than two months, doctors' offices have been burglarized, hospital pharmacies pillaged, Drugstores robbed, medical supply firms ransacked, with one purpose in mind the theft of narcotics. The criminals are expert, cunning, vicious. Your job get them. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime, investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, transcribed in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Thursday, March 23rd. It was windy in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of narcotics. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on my way back from the record bureau, and it was 10.35 p.m. when I got to room 24. Narcotics detail. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, we'll be right over. Thank you. Get anything, Joe? Nothing we don't know already. How about you? That was the county hospital on the phone. Doc Welch. Pretty fair lead. I told him we'd be right over. What's he got? One of our informants, Benny Trounsel. Ready? Let's go. What's with Benny? It's bad shape. Somebody worked him over. They found him in an alley off of South Main. Yeah? Doc says Trounce will talk before he passed out. Anything good? He claimed he knows who's running the new dope racket in town. Says they got him. No, let's take the stairs here. Huh? Why should they bother with small fry like Benny? That's what I'm wondering. Blackmail, maybe. Hmm. Benny's still on the needle? Maybe that accounts for his story. Doc says his skull is fractured. Morphine doesn't do that to you. Yeah. Benny mentioned any names? I don't know. Doc didn't say. Here's the garage. Come on. When did they pick up Benny? About an hour ago. He had a pocket full of bindles on him. Heroin. 
Townsville's small fry. He never had that much dope on him in his life. That's what makes it interesting. Let's go. This episode featured Lillian Bayef, Herb Vigran, Virginia Gregg, and Herb Butterfield. County Hospital? Yes, sir. The line is busy. Will you wait? Thank you. Can I help you, gentlemen? We'd like to see Dr. Welsh. She's expecting us. Your names, please? This is Sergeant Romero. My name's Friday, police officer. Oh, yes. Around the corner to your left, room 127. The doctor's waiting for you. Thank you. Come on, Ben. I hope Benny's still talking. We could sure use a lead. Yeah. Here it is. 127. Hiya, Ben. Joe. How are you, Doc? Anything new? Just left Trounsel upstairs. You think we can talk to him now? Won't do much good. He died about six minutes ago. For almost two years, Benny Trounsel, an addict himself, had been one of the most valuable informants Ben and I had in the narcotic gangs. More than once, he had helped us solve a case, but this time, if Benny Trounsel had any direct leads to the nerve center of the newest narcotic ring, he took them with him. Besides his dying accusation that the ring had gotten to him, he left behind only two small scraps of information. First, when he arrived at the county hospital, Dr. Welsh reported that Trounsel repeatedly muttered the name Patterson. Secondly, among the few personal effects found in his pockets was a good amount of heroin and a small piece of white paper with two words scrawled on it, Tucker Building. Benny Trounsel's body was taken to the county morgue and the next morning it was posted. At the coroner's inquest, the cause of death was listed as a brain hemorrhage induced by severe blows by a blunt instrument on the sides and base of the skull inflicted by a person or persons unknown. Besides Ben and myself, the only identification witness at the inquest was a woman who managed a rooming house in Benedict Alley, where Trounsel used to stay periodically. After the inquest, we questioned her briefly in our office. Miss Streit, you say you can't remember any friends Trounsel had while he stayed at your rooming house? No, I can't. Besides, if I knew that man used dope, I never would have rented him a room. How long did he rent from you, Miss Strite? Oh, about six months. I run a respectable house. I don't mind if my people drink a little now and then, but those dope users, no, sir. Did you know anything about Tronsel, Miss Strite? Where he spent his time, where he had his meals? Well, don't serve at my place. Too much trouble. Most of the people eat at the Ace Lunchroom. Down the corner. Where's that, Miss Strite? Um, Grant and South Main. Right on the corner. And you think Tronsel might have spent some time there? He might have, I don't know. Miss Strite, did Trounsel ever mention anyone by the name of Patterson? No. Patterson? No. And you can't recall any friends he might have had? He had any friends and never set foot in my house. That's all I know. All right, Miss Strite, thank you. Here's a card, ma'am. If you come across any information about Trounsel, we'd appreciate it if you'd call us. Mm, all right. Isn't that all? That's all, ma'am. Thank you. Well, bye. Goodbye, ma'am. Let's talk a little bit about Dragnet again, working with Jack Webb. Yeah. You would were a part of his company, yes. So to so to speak, mm-hmm. it was an informal company, yeah. wasn't? it? Oh yes, sure. I mean, he didn't. It's have just a... that he relied on these people. He formed mm. a, not meaning to. I'm sure he didn't set out to form a group, but it was very hard to break into that little company of his. He it was looked, Vic Perrin, and you know, he looked. I think for a naturalness on the part of his. Oh actors. yes. He did. And he wanted the audience, whether on radio or television, to identify with these people, or at least to listen to them and say, that is really how this That's right. this person would sound on that. That being so, strangely, I have done some of the broadest characters I've ever done for Jack. I mean, really broad, far-out characters. 
except he felt that they were real. Mm. What he didn't want you to do was act. As long as you could be real in whatever you were doing, that was fine. What kind of direction did he give you then with that end in mind? Not any more than he had to. Uh -huh. Not character direction. He'd hand you the, the part and say mm. she's A or it was written out that mm. way. And if you, you got too far off, he'd bring you back. Mm. And you knew what was expected of you, and you he sure knew did. that you could uh -huh. do what he was looking for. That's so right. Just, well, yeah. How long did it take to do a Dragnet radio show, for example? Would it be a one-day thing? Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. A whole day? Half a day? No, not a whole day. Not even a whole day. Uh -huh. Yeah, not even a good identification witness. You got those listings we made on the Tucker building? Yeah. Yeah, let's see. Here it is. Okay, let me have it, huh? Tucker Building, 7310 South Wilshire. I wonder what Benny Charlesle could have been doing out there. Shouldn't be too hard to check. It's a small building. Yeah. Six listings for the whole place. A couple of law offices, real estate guy, dentists, architect, and a doctor. One dentist, one doctor. Could be a lead. Maybe. Pretty thin. Friday, Romero. Got a minute? Yes, Gipper. Come on, Joe. Yeah. What do you got, Ed? Letters. Here's a sample. Now listen to this. Chief of Detectives, Ed Backstrand, City Hall, Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. In view of mounting wave of narcotic robberies, strongly recommend that your efforts to curb this lawlessness be redoubled. They all like that? All of them. They're mad. Can you blame them? Not a bit. We haven't got much to go on, Chief. The gang's pretty smart. All right, then let's be smarter. There's no law against it. Doing our best, Giver. Then make it better. I'm sick of that bunch, and I'm tired of these letters. And look at that record. In two months, 15 drugstore robs, eight medical offices, two supply houses, two hospital pharmacies. Narcotics missing every time. Now, who's behind it? None of the old-timers. We've checked them out. Gone over every hype and mainliner we know of. All right, then get on the transients. New faces. Climb on every one of them that shoots the stuff until you get to that gang and break it. If you need help, holler. But get to that gang and break it. Do you understand? Okay, Skipper, we'll try. You dig up anything on that Transel case yet? Still checking out one lane. What? Slip of paper we found in Tronsel's pocket, Ed. Said Tucker building on it, that's all. Just gonna check it out when you called. All right, hop on it, fast. We got a lot of pressure on us. Keep in touch with the office. It was almost noon when Ben and I got out to the Tucker building. It was a two-story affair, comparatively small, very modern. We checked with the dentist in the building first, but he'd never heard of anyone by the name of Benny Tronsel. His records and appointment books proved it out. Well, that's one down, Joe. Yeah. Let's try that doctor's office now. What's his name? Let me see. Uh, oh, Springer. Dr. Fred Springer. He's on the second floor. Okay. There's a stairway down there. Come on. Pretty close to lunchtime. Might not be in. Maybe. Somebody should be there. We haven't got much time to play with. Yeah. Chief sure was up in there this morning. Here's the office. Fred Springer, M.D. We'd like to see Dr. Springer, please. Do you have an appointment? No, we don't. Well, the doctor's not in at present. Would you like to make an appointment for later in the day? No, ma'am. We're police officers. This is Sergeant Friday. I'm Sergeant Romero. How do you do? I'm uh, Miss Turner. I'm the doctor's nurse. Then you must take care of the appointment and record books for the doctor. Yes, I do. Well, maybe you can give us the information we're looking for, Miss Turner. Did the doctor ever have a patient by the name of Trounsel? Benny Trounsel? Trounsel? Mm-hmm. No, I, I don't think so. Just a moment. I'll check. Thank you. 
No. T-R-O-U-N-S-E-L, is that the way you spell it? Yes, ma'am. No. The name's not listed here. Uh, let me check the account book. No. Wait. That's funny. What's that, Miss Turner? Here in the back of the book in the doctor's handwriting. Look. Mm. Tronsel, the black parrot. Certainly funny. I can't remember seeing that notation before. It must be fairly recent. Miss Turner, what kind of a clientele would you say Dr. Springer has? Oh, it's quite exclusive. Beverly Hills, Bel Air. That's where most of the bills are mailed. Can you recall seeing Trounsel in the office here, Miss Turner? Small man, thin, walked with a kind of a limp, not very well dressed? No, I don't think so. Doesn't sound like any of our patients. Would you show us the doctor's prescription list for the last two months? We'd like to check them. Well, I'm afraid I can't. Dr. Springer keeps him in the safe. He's the only one who has the combination. How long you been with Dr. Springer? About ten months. Ever since he started his practice out here. Where was he before that? Philadelphia. I don't understand all these questions. Is anything the matter? Just a routine check, Miss Turner. When do you expect the doctor back? About four this afternoon. He's out making home calls. All right. Here's our card. Would you ask him to call us as soon as he comes in? I'll do that. Thank you, Miss Turner. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Oh, say, Miss Turner, there's one more question. Yes? Does Dr. Springer have a patient by the name of Patterson? Oh, yes. One of the doctor's first patients, John Patterson. He lives out on East Beverly Drive. When we left Dr. Springer's office, we called R&I. There was no make on John Patterson. Ben and I drove over to see him just on a hunch. It didn't pay off right then, but it showed a little promise. When the maid came to the door of the Swank apartment, she told us Patterson was out for the day. We asked her about Patterson's occupation. She didn't know. We asked her about his friends, his business acquaintances. She could remember only two people visiting the apartment. One of them was Dr. Springer, apparently a constant visitor. The other, a tall, dark man who spoke bad English. We asked the maid how long she had worked for Patterson. She said ever since he moved to Los Angeles, about six months before. A few things started to fall into place, but it was strictly a guesswork operation. Ben and I got in the car and headed for the south end of the city to check out some of the places Benny Trounsel was supposed to have frequented. We met a stone wall, from the ace lunchroom near Benny's former rooming house to the Black Parrot. No one was willing to talk. Threats didn't work and neither did promises. Ben and I gave up for the moment and headed back to the office. Pacific Ambulance 1, call to Alhambra, is now code 3. Seems like Skid Row doesn't want any part of this one. Yeah, there's a bad feeling. Something's got him scared. Sure would like to know what it is, or who it is. Yeah, I'd like Control to know the answer one, to that, Control 1, unit 80K. Control 1, unit 80K. Bust, Joe, get it, will you? I got it. 80K to Control 1, 80K to Control 1, go ahead. 80K. Call station 2511, code 3. 80K to Control 1, Roger, KMA 367. Wonder what that's all about. Well, let's find out. There's a drugstore. They ought to have a phone. Pull over, huh? You got a nickel? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Thanks. I'll be back in a minute. Webb leaned on James Moser for writing, and Bill Rousseau for early direction. City Hall. 2511. Thank you. Vic Perrin was an often featured guest star. Bill directed it for a long time, 
And he was uh, in on the origination of the show, too. He and a director, uh, an NBC director, Carl Gruner, was also in on it. Then check in as soon as you can. Got something good. What? You remember the stick-up at St. Agnes Hospital about a month ago? Pharmacy there? What about it? Two patrolmen picked up a user down near Union Station about an hour and a half ago. Bill did the directing for, I don't remember how long it was, but eventually I think Jack took over. But, yes, Bill was a fine director and a fine person. Stacy Harris and Lawrence Dobkin were also featured in this cast. I put the call through to the state medical board and asked for a check on Dr. Fred Springer. They said they'd call back within the hour. In the meantime, we had James Steiner brought to one of the interrogation rooms for questioning. It was all talk. It's like I told the sergeant when they booked me. I don't know anything about this hospital job. Sit down, Steiner. Oh, all right, thanks. How long you been in the city, Steiner? L.A.? Oh, about a month. I came from Phoenix looking for work. Things are pretty slow in Phoenix. Where'd you get the morphine? Huh? I said, where'd you get the morphine? The stuff? Uh, I bought it. Just for a pop now and then. I just play around with it. Just for kicks. Who'd you buy the vial from? Who? I don't know. A guy in a bar gave me a price. Which bar was that? Which bar? Uh, Black Parrot. I, I'm not hooked. I, I just play around with it just for kicks. What'd the guy look like, Stoner? What did he look like? I don't know, tall, I guess. Would you remember him if you saw him again? Remember? Sure. I talked to him a couple of nights at the bar. Was he on the stuff? Was he a hype? Hype? Yeah, maybe. Tall fella, dark. You shooting the stuff? Shooting the stuff? No. No, I, I'm no mainliner. I never took in the veins of my life. I, I told you I'd do it just for kicks. Just to pop now and then. Take off your shirt. Let's see your arms. Huh? My arms? Come on, take it off. Well, who are you kidding, Stanley? Your arm looks like a pincushion. I, I, I told you just once in a while, just for the kicks. I'm not hooked on it. They found two vials of stolen morphine on you, Steiner. You can go two ways, hard or easy. Hard or easy? I, I told you I ain't done nothing. I, I bought this stuff. I, I use a cap or a bindle once in a while for kicks, but I'm not hooked. I bought this stuff, I tell you. Who was he, Steiner? Who sold it to you? Who? I told you I met him in a bar, the Black Parrot. Who was he? He was tall. Dark, he gave me a good price. Come on, let's have it, Steiner. His name. I'm, f- I'm feeling sick. You... you got something for me. I'm sick. All right. Mike. Yeah, Joe. Get some milk. A couple of quarts right away. Okay, Joe. You ready to tell us, Steiner? Who was he? I'm sick. I'm sick. We're getting some milk for you now. Come on, you better talk. Max. That, that, that's all he said. Name was Max. He gave me a good price. I, I only take a pop now and then just for kicks. You think you could point him out for us? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I, I'm sick. I'm sick. Narcotics from Merrill. Hello. This is Dr. Springer calling. You wanted to talk to me. Yes, we did, Doctor. And we've got a few questions we'd like to ask you. Oh, hold on just a minute, will you? It's Dr. Springer, Joe. All right, tell him we got to see him tonight. We'll call him back later. Doc Springer? Yes? Sorry, doctor. We'll have to see you later on tonight. You be at home? Well, I have an appointment this evening. Uh, would you mind telling me what this is all about? Sure, doctor. It's about a man named Benny Trounsel. Oh. I see. And if you don't mind, we'd like to check over your prescription list with you. Yes. I'll cancel my appointment. 
You can contact me here at home. 1538 South Road. I'll be here all night. All right, Doctor. Thank you. We'll see you later, then. Uh, yes. Goodbye. Goodbye. What'd he say? All right? Yeah, it's all right. I'll buy that hunch of yours now, Joe. Hmm? Dr. Springer, he knows who killed Benny Tronzel. I bet he knows why. When Mike Hannon came back with the milk, we fed it to Steiner, and then we put him back in his cell. We put in another call to John Patterson out on East Beverly Drive, but there was no answer. Herb, yeah. did you ever work for Jack Webb? Oh, yes, I did a lot. An of awful lot, didn't you? Yeah, an yeah. awful lot, yeah. And most of his people were radio people. Mm-hmm. Now, he was Virginia Gregg all the time. Yes. Was he a, an easy guy to work for? Well... A lot of people didn't think so. I loved him. I, I had never had a problem with Jack. I got along just great with Jack. He was a very positive guy and a very impatient guy. Put up with no nonsense. But boy, he knew what he wanted, and he got what he wanted. See, the living room was dimly lighted. We went in. We found Dr. Springer sitting in a large carved mahogany chair in the dining room. The room was hung with draperies. He was slumped forward, face down on the dining table. There was a bullet hole in his right temple. On the floor near his right hand was a 32 automatic pistol. In the center of the dining table was a piece of white paper. Looks like he beat us. Yeah. Any names on that confession? One. Says he killed Trump. No, wait a minute. It says, uh, John Patterson, he forced me to this. What? I don't know. What's it look like to you? Here's another one, Norberg. That's all it says. Then he signed his name, Dr. Fred Springer. Ben, come over here, look at these. Mm, hypodermic needle. It works. Just morphine? White powder, could be. And he was on it himself. Looks like it. We'll find out when they post him. I'll get it. Yeah. Sergeant Friday there, please. This is Joe, Mike. What do you got? Can you talk all right there? Yeah, go ahead. Just got a kickback on your call to the state medical board on this Dr. Fred Springer. Mm-hmm. He's not a registered physician in the state of California. Besides that, his license was revoked in Pennsylvania two years ago. Illegal operations. That explains it. Notify homicide. Get the crime lab in the corner out here, will you? Looks like Springer shot himself. Okay, Joe, right away. We'll wait for him, but hurry him up, Mike. We got a couple more places to check out tonight. Okay, Joe, see you later. Right. What's next, Patterson Place? I don't know. Maybe we ought to try Steiner first. Sounds good to me. Feels like we're getting close. Yeah, Ben, real close. That style, by the way, has been largely misinterpreted. Everybody said that all the actors spoke in a monotone, and that is not true. What Jack said was, do not project. Don't act. Yes, well, well in was... effect, yes, but acting in the sense of Be real. projecting a performance. You had a great deal of scope in the way you played the character as long as it didn't become too large. And he drove a merciless pace. His TV scripts had about 50% more material in them than the average TV show of the same length. You had to play in the same key that he played in, or you looked like an absolute ham. Actually, he would deny this, but I believe that he was doing the same thing as the actor's studio, only in radio in those days. I don't think it carried over in the television shows, but I do think in those early days in radio, he was going for absolute truth, and it was right after the war, and people wanted absolute truth. 
All right, Davis, cover the back of the house. Levine, you cover the front. Come on, Ben. Yes? Mr. Norberg in? Who's calling? Police officers. Oh, come in, won't you? Thank you. Now get your hands up. Face the wall. You'll never make it, lady. The house is surrounded. Tony, get the stuff. It's our only chance. They'll cut you down, Norberg. All right, Jeannie, give him the gun. Don't be a fool. They're going to march out the door in front of us, right to the car. I'm not going, Jeannie. Try it if you want. I'm not going. All right, Tony, stay. Come on, coppers. You'll never make it, lady. I said move. Fast. All right, Ben, hit the dirt. She's going for the car. See if you can get those tires. Dane? Yeah. Norberg was smart. Must be the girlfriend. Guess so. Wonder why they start. Hmm? Why did they get on the stuff, Joe? For kicks, Ben. None of them ever get hooked. Just for kicks. The story you have just heard is true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. Tony Norberg, alias John Patterson, was tried and convicted for possession of narcotics, robbery, and conspiracy, and was sentenced to the maximum... NBC's new president, Pat Weaver, had a hit. It wasn't long before Liggett & Myers Tobacco signed on as a sponsor. days after his arrival at the state penitentiary. You have just heard the ninth in a new series of authentic cases transcribed from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet is furnished by the Los Angeles Police Department. Tonight's program is dedicated to Chief Erskine Ert Fish of the North Sacramento Police Department, who on the night of August 11, 1935, gave his life so that yours might be more secure. Dragnet came to you from Los Angeles. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Now, Jack never liked my style of work, never approved of it. Intermittently, I would work with Jack when he was not hiring. You know, we would work together on shows like The Amazing Mr. Malone, The Lovejoy Show. We did that all the time together. I auditioned for Jack a number of times. I got very stubborn about it. I would stop him and say, Jack, I've got to work with you. I've got to work on your show. I require, please, another audition. I want to try again. I can get right down there into that monotone. And he'd say, all right, come around 3 o'clock. You know, i got a studio. It's a 3B. And I would come around. And I would pick up a script, and I would read it as close to as I could get. And Jack would say, uh-uh, overplaying, get out of here. CBS took notice. A month after Dragnet's premiere, they shifted Broadway's My Beat to Hollywood and put it under the direction of Elliot Lewis.
I believe that somebody up there likes all of us. And if that's our right place and we make the right moves and do the right things, we'll make it. And if it isn't right for us, we'll do something else. Yes. You know? You certainly kept persevering, though. You didn't quit, did you? No. I never thought of quitting. If I had, I would owe later, when I was successful, and there wasn't much chance of me having to quit, I said, well, if it ends tomorrow, I can go out on a ranch and still do a day's work and make a living, and I'll eat and sleep and be warm. Dragnet's success led NBC to launch several radio shows in 1950. Small studio dramatic programs were good deals for advertisers. Their cost per ratings point was much lower than orchestra or large variety shows. One of these new NBC shows was a modern Western detective drama called Tales of the Texas Rangers. It starred Hollywood A-lister Joel McRae. McRae was an outdoorsman who owned a 3,000 acre spread in Southern California. He spent the second half of his career appearing almost exclusively in Western films. Tales of the Texas Rangers was bundled with five other programs, including Nightbeat, Dangerous Assignment, and Dimension X, and sold to Wheaties for their big parade in May of 1950. The show premiered on July 8th. of the Texas Rangers, starring Joel McRae as Ranger Jace Pearson. Another authentic reenactment of a case transcribed from the files of the Texas Rangers. Dates and places in the following story are fictitious for obvious reasons. The events themselves are a matter of record. You know, when Thursday rolls around, it'll bring more top radio entertainment to you over these NBC stations. Thursday starts right off in high gear with Robert Young starring as heroic and harassed Jim Anderson. Creator Stacy Keach convinced the Texas Rangers to allow for the dramatization of closed cases. The organization got final script approval. Keach and writer Joel Murcott got technical assistance from a 30-year veteran, Captain M.T. Lone Wolf Gonzalez. Each episode featured Hollywood Radio's best character actors. Herb Ellis and Herb Vigran often appeared in guest parts. Last week, did you guys play uh, Tales of the Texas Rangers? Was I the partner to Jay's? What was my name? No. What was my name in the show? Well, I played his partner. Well, who was his partner? Harley Bear was the sheriff? Harley was on. Oh, well, then maybe that particular Jerry show... Jerry Hausner done. was on it, too, I think. Maybe that particular part. But I, I remember doing many, many episodes as his partner and being featured. Uh, and by the way, that was... Yes. Mr. Keen, Tracer of Lost Persons... That's who I was, Clay Morgan. Thank you. And that show was produced by Stacy Keats, the father of Stacy Keats, the actor, and his brother. 
And now, from the files of the Texas Rangers, the case called Clip Job. It is 10 o'clock on the evening of January 24th, 1950. A bitter wind whips through the streets in the North Texas town of Bolton. As the clock in the town hall strikes the hour, an elderly woman makes her way toward a lighted drugstore. Well, thank you, Mr. Darrow. Thank you. Uh, good night. Can I help you, ma'am? Are you Mr. Crandall? Yes, ma'am. Some people told me you know everybody here in town. Well, ma'am, I reckon I do. I've had this drugstore 23 years. Do you know a man named George Colley? Colley? Colley. No, ma'am, I, I don't believe I do. Um, uh, what's it look like? Well, he's a big man. Kind of stout, with gray hair. He's in the oil business. Well, ma'am, I might be wrong, but I don't recall anybody looks like that by the name of Collie. Of course, he could be new around town. Oh, no. He said he's lived here for years. Have you asked anybody else in town if they knew? Yes. I've asked all day. Hmm. And you sure you got the right town? Mr. Collie said Bolton. He told me he lived on Corsi Street. That's right, ma'am. We got a Corsi Street here. I went to the address he gave me. People there never heard of Mr. Carley. I guess I've come a long way. From nothing. I'm sorry, ma'am. You've been very kind. Oh, not at all. Anything else I can help you with? I'll just look around a little, if you don't mind. Why, sure, sure. Just take your time. I'll go ahead wrapping up these orders. Mr. Crandall. Yes, ma'am? That bottle up there, how much does it cost? Uh, this one? The large one, just above it, with a red label. Oh, that bottle's not for sale, ma'am. We sell it by the ounce. How much is it an ounce? Dollar and a quarter. But it's poison, ma'am. You'll need a prescription to buy it. Prescription? Yes, ma'am, from your doctor. Oh. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> You feeling all right, ma'am? Yes. I'm all right. Well, you don't look so good to me, ma'am. You better come over here to the soda fountain and sit down. I'll, I'll, Please I'll leave just... me alone. Uh, ma'am! Ma'am! Operator! Operator! Uh, get me Doc Holmes and hurry! The woman was taken to the county hospital where she was found to be in the first stage of starvation. Some letters in her handbag identified her as Mrs. Agnes Howell of Minden. Early the next morning, she regained consciousness and was able to talk. Upon hearing a story, Sheriff Ted Dreyer asked for assistance from the Texas Rangers. Ranger Jace Pearson was assigned and joined the sheriff at the hospital shortly after 8 o'clock. Sure glad you got here so quick, Jace. This one's a little too rough for me to handle. Want to give me a fill-in before we see Mrs. Howell? Well, Jace, I could, but I'd rather have you hear it direct from her. It, no, down this way. They had to put her in a charity ward. Didn't she have any relatives up in the town where she came from? Minden? Nope, I checked. Her husband died four months ago. She didn't have nobody else. You know, Jace, that poor old lady hadn't eaten in 48 hours. No money? When I went through her pocketbook for identification, I found 13 cents. Here we are. Ms. Howell's a third bed down. 
morning, Miss Howell. Uh, Miss Howell, this is Ranger Pearson. I'd like you to tell him everything you told me. What's the use? He can't get my money back. Six thousand dollars. All I had in the world. Gone. Somebody stole your money, ma'am? I didn't know he was going to steal it. Mr. Colley. He seemed like such a fine man. Everything he said, I believed. Oh, I'm so ashamed. Oh, now, now, Miss Howell. I'm sorry. I'm all right now. This Mr. Colley, do you know his first name? George. He seemed like the kind of man you could trust. Big and sort of stout with nice gray hair. When he come to the house, he said he'd been a friend of my husband's. How long ago was this, ma'am? Well, a month, I think. When I told him my husband was dead, he seemed so upset. He said he had a check for my husband. Five hundred dollars was the profit from one of Mr. Collie's oil wells. Had your husband ever said anything to you about investing in an oil well? No. But lots of people around Menden have made money from oil. I didn't think there was anything wrong. Did Mr. Collie give you the check? Well, no. He said he wanted to do me a favor. Said he'd double my $500 in three days. When he came back, he told me he'd done even better. He had $1,200 for me. And then he said if you'd put the rest of your money to it, he'd make a lot more. Is that it? He told me I'd get at least $50,000. How did you know? I just had an idea. You gave him the money, didn't you, ma'am? Yes, I did. He promised me $50,000. Seemed like such a lot. It is, ma'am. And so's your $6,000. When did you first get suspicious of Mr. Colley? About two weeks after he left. He said he'd be back in a week. When he didn't show up for a month, Miss Howell decided to come over here to Bolton and look for him. I had to. There wasn't any more food in the house. I was ashamed to go to the neighbor's. Our life savings. I was such a fool. I'd like to get my hand on this collie fellow for just five minutes. I hope I can oblige you, Sheriff. Mrs. Howell, when Collie was in your town, did he stay at a hotel? Yes, he did. The Fuller Hotel. It's the only one in Minden. Mr. Collie seemed like such a nice man. I still can't believe it. That's just what he counted on, ma'am. Come on, Sheriff. Let's take a ride over to Minden. Turn right at the next corner, Jace. Four hotels at the end of the block. Uh huh. You know, there's one thing I can't understand. How did this collie know to come right to Ms. Howell? It's an old racket, Sheriff. He's what we call a hearse chaser. Scouts around till he finds a widow with a little bit of money, and then he goes to work. But how did he happen to find Ms. Howell? Yeah, he didn't just happen. Probably use the local newspaper. By the middle of 1950, more than 10,000 U.S. homes were turning on TVs each week. The rest was easy. Yeah, too easy. Radio ratings fell by 30% to their lowest since 1936, and radio budgets were being siphoned into television production. yet. Most of the women he swindled don't come to us till months after it's happened. That makes it tough, all right. Here's a hotel, James. Wheaties pulled the plug on the entire big parade in just eight weeks. 
You sure were doing right coming over here to Minden. Seems like a mighty cold trail. No trail's ever cold, Sheriff. Not as long as it's a trail. NBC moved Tales of the Texas Rangers to Sunday afternoons in October of 1950. Clerk don't seem to be around. This episode, Clip Jaw, originally aired on January 13th, 1952. It featured Parley Bear, Herb Ellis, Virginia Gregg, Tony Barrett, and Lillian Byeth. This is Ranger Pearson. Howdy, Ranger. Anything wrong? We'd like to get a little information from you. Well, now, I'd be right proud to answer anything you've got to ask. Always glad to help out a ranger. Do you remember a man named George Colley? Stayed here about a month ago. Well, that's real funny you asked about Mr. Colley. Oh? Kind of stout fella, gray hair, smokes big black cigars all the time. He the one you mean? You ain't seen him around here lately, have you? Nope. Uh, but me and my wife was talking about him just last night. Anything special made you remember him? Hmm. You bet there is. Ain't often a man keeps a big wad of cash in my safe like Mr. Collie did. Six thousand dollars it was. Brought it in the last day he was here. How'd you know it was six thousand? I made him count it before he put it in the envelope. All hundred dollar bills it was. I asked him why he didn't put that much money in the bank. Said he didn't trust banks. How long did Mr. Collie stay here? Two, uh, no, three days. Yep, three days. Oh, I never forgot. There was something else he put in the safe. What was that? A gold ring with a diamond, biggest end of your thumb. I said to him, sort of joking, now, Mr. Collie, you act like we got crooks here in Minden. And he answers real serious. You never know. Just like that. You never know. We have a look at his hotel bill. Uh, Mr. Collie done something wrong? Better just go ahead and get what the ranger asked. Hmm? Oh, sure. I didn't mean to get nosy. i have it for you in a minute. What do you want with Collie's hotel bill, Jase? Sometimes they're like diaries, Sheriff, and this one might give us the lead we're looking for. Here you are, Ranger. $21.50. Paid in full. Cash. It's mm, a pretty big bill for three days. Well, he had some cleaning and laundry done. Rush, so it was actually... You can see it right here. Mm-hmm. This item number four, 230 for telephone. Is that for local calls? No, we don't charge for local calls. I reckon Mr. Colley must have phoned out of town. Any idea who he phoned? That might be real hard to say, Ranger. We just get the charges and put them on the bill. Thanks. Come on, Sheriff. Where are we going, Jace? Down to the phone company. Think we might be on to something? I don't know, but it could be Mr. Colley left us a little message without knowing it. At the phone company office, we learned that Collie had called a Miss Sally Ronson in Dallas. The number belonged to a fancy roadhouse near town. I left the sheriff in Bolton and headed for Dallas. On the way, I radioed Company B and asked them to have somebody locate Sally Ronson and keep her under surveillance till I arrived. When I pulled up in front of the roadhouse at 10 that night, Ranger Clay Morgan was waiting for me. Over here, Jase. Hello, Clay. I got your message, Jase. Cap wants me to work with you on the rest of the case. Good. Get a line on Sally Ronson? Uh-huh. She tap dances in the floor show inside. Just watch the end of her act. She's got another show tonight. Let's go in. Sure. Jace, you think this girl is mixed up in the hearse chasing racket with Collie? Mm, it's hard to say. But he called her long distance. That's enough to start on. The manager said her dressing room was down at the end of the hall. How much did Collie get from the old lady in Minden, Jace? Six thousand. Everything her husband left her. Mm. She must have been an awful easy mark. Maybe, but Collie's a pretty sharp article. Is this Sally Ronson's dressing room? Yeah. Just a minute. She sounds a little tired. Yeah, she's a little frayed at the edges. How much is... Oh, I thought you was the kids in the drugstore. I'm Ranger Pearson, ma'am. This is Ranger Morgan. All right, if we come in for a few minutes? Why not? 
excuse me for not having shoes on. I'll go get my slippers. It's all right, ma'am. We just want to ask you a few questions. I'm getting so I never want to have shoes on when I'm not dancing. You know how bad it makes you feel when your feet get tired. Yes, ma'am. Sit down. No, thanks. Seems like I'm tired all the time now. Uh, seven years of dancing in places like this. What kind of questions do you want to ask? Do you know a man named George Colley? No, should I? He phoned you from a town called Minden about a month ago. <laughs> Lots of men phone me. They get the idea I'm glamorous because I'm a show gal. Oh, glamorous with swollen feet. You sure you don't remember hearing from George Colley? Ranger, look, I'd like to help you, but I don't even know him. Well, let's try again. He's a middle-aged man, stout, gray hair, smokes strong cigars. Oh, him. Well, why didn't you say so? The oil man. But his name's George Connor. Is that what he told you it was? Yeah, I guess he's got two names. Or 20. Why did he call you? To make a date. He always takes me out when he's near where I'm playing. Makes me tired with all his big talk, but he buys a good dinner. He in trouble? Yeah. You seen him recently? Uh, a week, maybe ten days ago. You expect to see him again soon, Miss Ronson? Look, Rangers, I can't afford to get mixed up in nothing. Bad publicity would ruin my bookings. We'll see you don't get mixed up in it. When are you supposed to see him again? Tomorrow. Club's closed and I don't have to work. He's coming in town. Said he'd pick me up at my place at six. Want me to call you when he gets in? No, ma'am. If you don't mind, we'll wait there with you. This is one date we're all going to keep together. Although Dragnet was rated in the top 15, with increasing competition from television, radio programs without sponsorship were doomed. In just a moment, we will continue with Tales of the Texas Rangers... Tales of the Texas Rangers never again found a buyer and was canceled in September of 1952. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? But gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow. We're talking with Jim Jordan, the famous Fibber McGee from the Fibber McGee and Molly days of the good old days of radio, and we're, well, we're right about at 79 Wistful Vista now, and our 
trip through the main street of yesterday on radio. Jim Jordan was 79 Wistful Vista, the address of Fibber McGee and Molly, right from the beginning in 1935? No, not the beginning. We didn't have an address and we didn't have a house in the beginning. In the beginning, we started selling a wax product called Carnu for the Johnson Company. Mm -hmm. We traveled around in a car for about a year. Really? Yes. What kind of a car was it? Oh, a broken down jalopy. And we'd <laughs> drive into filling stations and we'd get into the, that would lead into the car uh -huh. commercial. Uh -huh. When they decided to go on with it after the 26 weeks, see, we made a deal. In the beginning, we said we didn't care about what money we got. We only cared for one thing. They leave us on for 26 weeks. Don't stop us after 13. And they told us afterwards if, if they hadn't have done that, they probably would have dropped us after the 13 weeks because it was summertime to begin with. Uh -huh. We didn't bother them very much those first 13 weeks. <laughs> so when we wanted to settle down, they wanted to put us into a house. You know, have a home. Mm -hmm. So how will we get this house? Somebody conceived the idea of, uh, they didn't have any money, he didn't have any money, mm -hmm. how are they going to get a house? We entered into a raffle on a real estate subdivision and we won it. We won the house in a <laughs> raffle. That's where we got it. <laughs> and the name of this town that was having this, this place was called Wistful Vista. You know, Wistful is sad. Vista is view. So Wistful Vista was the place that had a sad view. That's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where Wistful Vista came from. And then we named our house the same as the town. 79 Wistful Vista. Jim and Marion Jordan's Fibber McGee and Molly was Tuesday at 9.30 p.m. appointment radio. 40 million people tuned in each week, and Fibber's Hall Closet became one of radio's most famous running gags. This is something that's very important. We learned that a long time ago with the Smith family. Uh-huh. You painted a picture the same as if you were doing it in a motion picture or doing it on a stage for people to see. You painted that picture so the people could see what they were laughing at. That was mm -hmm. the trick. Mm -hmm. We had a, an expression that we used, that, that don't get the picture. Uh -huh. if, you do, if you don't make a picture, you're not going anywhere. This is the way we thought about it anyway. On the radio, the way we did it, there was no door, there was nothing. The, the man piled this stuff up on a stepladder way up to the ceiling, and then on a cue, he'd knock it over. It couldn't have been pictured the way we actually did it. <laughs> I think no that matter. was one of the great trademarks of the Fibber McGee and Molly show, the, uh, the hall closet. <laughs> the strange thing about it was that, especially in the last five, seven, eight years that we did it, we would do that as many as three times a year. That's all. And, and everybody that ever says anything about Fibber McGee and Molly now, they always think of the closet, and they think that Fibber McGee and Molly was a closet. You know? <laughs> and it's the truth that we wouldn't do it over two or three times in a year. 
You felt that. that the gag was wearing thin. We didn't want it to wear thin. We yeah. wanted to keep it alive as long as we possibly could. And sure. we talked about it and did keep it alive. Yeah. But we wouldn't actually do it. Boy, we'd have a big meeting about whether to do it or not. And what would Fibber say after the last tinkle, after the last crash? Got to straighten out that closet one these days. <laughs> <laughs> and the laughs across the nation, I'm sure, can still be heard if you listen carefully enough. The show's longtime writer was Don Quinn. But there was a thread of a story. Always. And everything happened around just a little light theme. Yes. I think the genius uh, behind that, of course, was Don Quinn. That's He'd right. come up with this line, and then the, the characters almost couldn't all, help but reacting in those different ways. All the storylines came out of a meeting. Mm -hmm. not, not that Don didn't bring them in, mm -hmm. but we would hash them over, and sometimes other people would bring in something that would become mm -hmm. a storyline. But he had the ability to... People are beginning to realize what a great writer he was now. I was over at Walt Disney Studios yesterday talking to some people. One of these fellows said to me, he said that Don Quinn, he, he was one of the great writers, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. And we hear that more now than we did 20 years ago, which is as it should be. Well, he was working then. He was uh, doing oh, his yeah. thing then, yeah. and they're creating these programs yeah. and the characters. But several times we would give up on a show on Monday noon. Mm. Just mm. We're ready. It's all on paper, ready to go. And it wasn't just coming off. I can remember him. He said, well, I'll, I'll start here and I'll take it home and I'll rewrite it tonight, Monday night. Mm. And we'd do it Tuesday. After television's proliferation, the program's audience rapidly shrunk. Longtime sponsor Johnson's Wax left in 1950. And by January of 1952, the show's rating was down to a 10.7. In 1953, with her health deteriorating, a doctor suggested to Marion Jordan that she take a long rest. She refused. She would continue performing. Production moved to the couple's home in Encino. The music was pre-recorded, and the commercials were no longer built into the show. It's time for Fibber, McGee, and Molly. Sundays through Thursdays, NBC brings you Fibber, McGee, and Molly transcribed. The show is written by Phil Leslie and Ralph Goodman and directed by Max Hutto. First, here are some words from our two friends that we'll let you listen in on. McGee, I watched a little red-haired tyke buying his weekly supply of candy today. Yeah? <laughs> two cents for licorice whips, a penny for jawbreakers. <laughs> oh, he had every one of his pennies carefully accounted for. Smart kid. Now, when he grows up... I know. He'll be able to balance his checkbook. More than that. 
you'll be able to handle the kind of problem a lot of folks with limited incomes face today. Budgeting for plain, everyday living expenses. And for other important things, too, like life insurance protection. Well, that's just exactly why the Prudential Insurance Company has those easy-to-budget weekly and monthly premium plans, isn't it? Yep. With these Prudential policies, folks who have to watch their dollars can make small weekly or monthly payments over the year and still enjoy regular life insurance protection. And for extra protection... These policies have valuable disability and accidental means death benefits. You can get them for every member of your family in amounts from, oh, a few hundred dollars up to several thousand dollars. And to make it really convenient, your Prudential agent calls at your home for the payments. Yes, and your Prudential agent will be glad to drop around and give you all the details. Just call him. Beginning on October 3rd, 1953, Fibber, McGee, and Molly became a 15-minute weekday serial. If you've been around Wistful Vista in the past few days, you've noticed that the Elks Club has taken over the operation of Walt's Malt Shop and Hamburger Joint for the weekend. The food has been donated and the profits go to charity. Come on in, let's have a burger and see how business is. <laughs> Two burgers with. Two burgers with. Gotcha. Side of fries. Side of fries. One order of genuine southern style deep hash, please. One gambler's special. Gotcha. Oh, chef. Yeah. What happened to the bacon tomato on toast hold the french fries? Coming up. Take it easy. Oh, boy, the way them women throw the orders at you. Even my own wife yelling at me. My gosh, I only got two heads, or er, two hands. Well, I'm ready to go, Mr. McGee, with our advertising campaign. This should bring in lots of business. Yeah, hold on a sec, Wimp. I gotta get some more hamburgers on the fire. There, now let's see how you look. That sandwich board sign isn't gonna be too heavy for you, is it? Heavy? Mm-hmm. Mm. Don't be silly. I'm powerful, Mr. McGee. I've got uh, strength I haven't even used yet. Good. Now, all you have to do is go down the street there in the front of the carnival. Ham sandwich! Ham sandwich! Walk back and forth and let everybody read our ad on there. Yeah? What happened to my bacon tomato on? Coming up! Because once they get a look at that sign that I painted, they'll mob this place and we'll do more business than we ever... Coming up? McGee, you've been saying that for the past half hour. Now, my customer's getting... What are you made up for, Mr. Wimple? Well, I'm going... He's our advertising department, kiddo. Turn around, Wimp. Show her what it says on the sign. Hurry one, hurry one, hurry one. Those aren't ones. They're exclamation points, Molly. Oh! Hurry, hurry, hurry. Yeah. Two-hour special starting at noon. All you can eat for a dollar? That's it, kiddo. I just cleared it with the Elks Club Charity Committee. They gave me the okay. But all you can eat for a dollar, that seems... Look, we already made more than we expected to running this place over the weekend. We got nothing to lose. Either I guessed wrong and we lose a few bucks today, or I guessed right and we finish in a blaze of glory. I voted for the idea, Mrs. McGee. I, I like to live dangerously. Well, I hope it works out. Where's Mr. Wimple going with this sign of yours? That's the big idea, kiddo. There's a lot of new customers in the neighborhood today. Open that back door a minute, Wimp. And listen, Molly... Oh, for goodness sake. Sounds like... Yep. Carnival. I noticed them setting up in that vacant lot down the street when I came in this morning. Carnival people are always looking for a good, inexpensive place to eat. Well, who isn't? It's getting close to lunchtime right now. Quarter twelve. So off you go, Wimp. Go get them, boy. Sick em. Oh, I'll get him. All right, folks. Step right up. Don't miss the chance of a lifetime. Get this sensational offer at Walt's Small Shop today. Only... <laughs> boy, look at him go. Well, he just loves that job. Yes, now talking about how you think of everything, what about that bacon tomato sandwich I've been waiting for? Oh, my gosh, I did it again. What? Burned your toast. 
Quick, get it out before it catches on fire like the last oh, time. Oh, dear. Is that what's been holding up that sandwich? Yeah, every time the toast is ready, Cora yells. What happened to those burgers and that ham sandwich? Yeah, and every time I take a look at her, yours gets burned. Make me some toast, huh? Please? Okay, I will. I've got to get these burgers off the fire and stir the french fries. Gee whiz, if I thought this chef's job was going to be so complicated, I'd have taken busboy like they offered it to me in the first One place. One for the sandwich, please. One dog. Two eggs over easy, side of sausage, chocolate sundae, stack of weeds. What happened to my two burgers with the ham sandwich? and Mrs. McGee? Your customer just left. You got tired of waiting? Good. Move over, dearie. I'll help you. Hand me the plates. You get the burgers. I'll get the ham sandwich if you'll hand me those pickles. Oh, the toast is burning again. This storyline from late May in 1955 has Fibber running his friend Walt's malt shop. There's more fun with the McGee's shortly. The final episode of the 15-minute serial format ran on March 23, 1956. After that, Jim and Marion joined NBC's Monitor in short vignettes. The show, uh, as Fibber McGee and Molly, as a half-hour radio show, went off the air in about 1954, didn't 53 it? 53 or 54, I yeah. And then we did a 15-minute show across the board for one year, and then we did Monitor for about three years. Yeah. In fact, when Marion became ill in 1960, in February, this cancer was discovered, and we were just, uh, the contract was made out for three more years of Monitor at that time. We never finished signing it. Well, that was one of the great losses to radio, certainly. But you were with uh, NBC for all those years, weren't you, Jim? We were with NBC for over 30 years. So don't delay. See your nearest Air Force recruiter right away and get the facts about your future as an airman. Remember, you'll go places faster. Put some more toast on, dearie. Yeah, uh, look, Molly, everything's under control now. You don't you don't have to stay back what? here. Soup du jour, please. Soup du jour, coming up. What'd you say, McGee? Radio is dying. And so is Marion. You're so jammed up. You go ahead and wait tables like In 1958, tests found that she had an inoperable form of cancer. Marion Jordan died at her home on April 7th, 1961. So you can get back to your tables before the mob starts pouring in here. The couple left an indelible mark on the comedy world, influencing many husband and wife sitcoms that came after. We lost Marion in 1961, and then there were no, no, no more new uh, Fibber and Molly performances on radio. No. The great sounds from 79 Whistle Vista, though, have continued to create pictures in our memories. He's over at the carnival, walking up and down with a sandwich sign that says, Hurry to Walt's Mall Shop, all you can eat for a dollar. And today, across the country, Jim and Mary and Jordan are still bringing pleasure to millions of listeners whenever one of those great Johnson's Wax programs is rerun. I believe the fact that they were not run and that I didn't, after Marion passed away, I didn't break my back trying to keep it alive. I wanted mm -hmm. to do things, but I never could do what I wanted to do. And I think the fact that that went on for all these years, which is about 10 years now, and, and the shows hadn't been done for, since 1953, actually, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the reason that all that has stayed away all this time is, is what's making it, uh, making it, well, uh, popular is the only word, now. 
I think that's what's bringing this resurgence at this point. In other words, if I'd have kept going all the time, maybe there wouldn't be this interest in it now. I have that feeling about it anyway. Well, I think the quality of the broadcasts stands up. Well, it and, does. Uh, and that's what makes it uh, well-received today by a whole new generation of people who never uh, before uh, imagined Fibber McGee and Molly. Well, the strange thing to me is that from the, when all not radio nostalgia, the golden age of radio, you get the feeling, you know, I would imagine that people get the feeling, the only thing that was in the golden days of radio that was going on at that time was Fibber McGee and Molly, because it's always mentioned. And that's strange to me, because... Some of the Elks went over to the carnival and explained that this deal was all for charity, so the... Boy, we had some great radio shows. Yeah, but you were one of the great radio shows. Well, yeah, we were only one, though, but Benny and Burns and Allen and uh, Bergen and Red Skelton, those shows were just great. I don't, and it's strange that uh, there's something about it that makes people. I think it's that word. Well, I, uh, <laughs> well, it's a it's a great word, but you see, you were unique to radio. and Molly is an NBC Radio Network production transcribed with Bill Thompson as the old-timer and Wallace Wimple, Elvia Allman as Cora, and Myra Marsh as Mrs. Bradley. Ladies, is your girdle uncomfortable? Well, tomorrow night, Mr. McGee finds out just how miserable they can make one. This is John Wall saying, don't miss this drama tomorrow on Fibber, McGee, and Molly. Join the great Gildersleeve for more fun in Summerfield tonight on the NBC Radio Network. Although Fibber, McGee, and Molly has been off the air since the 1950s, the show remains popular. NBC and Johnson's Wax saved over a combined 700 episodes. Most are available online today in good to great listening quality. Our time at America's malt shops and drugstores? It's ending. Summer is coming to a close. It's time to grab our pencils, bookcases, class schedules, and go back to school. You moved from films with ease into radio. You worked with Ken Murray for a while. Yes. Jack Haley. I did those things uh -huh. when I was working in the theater in New York. Mm -hmm. And then I came out on the coast with another one of those. I did a show with Danny Kay on radio. Then finally along came Miss Brooks. I'll be alone each and every night while you're away. Next time on Breaking Walls, it's back to school with radio's teacher's pets, class clowns, and perhaps the most iconic miss in radio history, the woman that would later become the principal of Rydell High. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, Network Radio Ratings, 1932-53 by Jim Ramsberg, Forecast, is there a sponsor in the house? By Martin Grahams Jr. Just the Facts Man. The authorized biography of Jack Webb by Eugene Alvarez and Daniel Moyer. And articles from Radio Life, January 1949.
on the interview front. Spurback was with Harry Bartell, Ralph Bell, Hyman Brown, Lillian Baia, Lawrence Dobkin, Herb Ellis, Virginia Gregg, Byron Kane, Jeanette Nolan, Herb Vigrant, and Peggy Weber. For more information, please go to spurvac.com. Chuck Shaden interviewed Eve Arden, Hyman Brown, Dennis Day, Phil Harris, Jim Jordan, Maureen Tuttle, and Herb Vigrant. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Joel McRae was with educator Al Greenberg. For more information, please go to orcodevelopment.org. Jim Jordan was with Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. This interview can be heard at goldenage-wtic.org. While Dennis Day and E. Jack Newman were with John Dunning for 71KNUS. And Vic Perrin was with Neil Ross for KMPC. Selected music featured in today's episode was Sleepwalk by Santo and Johnny, Go Slow by Julie London, The Klezmer's Wedding by Andre Moisan, Living Without You by George Winston, and See You in September by The Happenings. Special thanks to our sponsors, Radio Drama Revival and the Fireside Mystery Theater. Find them both on iTunes or at their links in the written credits. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Breaking Walls episode 95 will go back to school with last names like Arden, Coleman, and Nelson as we listen in on classroom-centered radio from the golden days of yesteryear. This episode will be available beginning September 1st, 2019 everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever podcasting platform you listen, especially iTunes. And if you've got some spare change, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as a buck a month by going to patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So, until September 1st, 2019, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode 94. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. (laughs) 